Hello, everyone. Welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we look back on the good old days and not so good old days of World Championship Wrestling, series by series. I'm Bob Moore, and I'm joined by Alec Pridgen, who's currently recording from 75 feet in the air and deserves all your praise. It's very, very cold up here. <laughs> And John Mullins, who was rumored to be a druid, but it turns out he just played one of the 13th Age tabletop RPG. Say hello, John. Hello, John. <laughs> uh, second episode. How's it going, guys? Pretty good, pretty good. Can't complain. I'm not doing bad. Just uh, looking forward to talking some wrestling. <laughs> All right. Well, this episode, we're going to take a look at Starcade 84, the million dollar challenge. I was three. <laughs> And sadly, this is not my first memory. I, I, I'm actually, I think I'd be glad about that myself. <laughs> Before we get started on the actual show, we need to address one of the most pivotal events of the developing rivalry between the future WCW and the WWF, a day known as Black Saturday. Vince McMahon, in the midst of his national expansion, had a national cable deal with the USA Network. As the WWF expanded, however, he thought it would need a second station, and was interested in the time slot currently held by Georgia Championship Wrestling on Ted Turner's TBS. McMahon made an offer to Turner for the time slot, but was turned down. McMahon, never one to give up too easily, came up with a different plan. If he couldn't have the time slot, he'd just buy Georgia Championship Wrestling itself, and get the time slot that way. Contacting Jack and Jerry Briscoe, and Jim Barnett, three of the owners, he convinced them to sell their stakes in GCW to him, giving him control over GCW, and by extension, the time slot. A fourth owner, Ole Anderson, was ousted by my understanding, and went on to found Championship Wrestling from Georgia, CWG. On July 14, 1984, McMahon simply replaced GCW's weekly World Championship Wrestling show with highlights from his own other programs, which, by the way, went counter to a promise that he made to Ted Turner to provide original programming to TBS. This change, along with the difference in the WWF's larger-than-life atmosphere compared to the more sports-like GCW, would not go over very well with GCW's fans. TBS got letter after letter after letter from angry fans as the ratings fell. Ted Turner was not happy with McMahon, and McMahon wasn't too happy with Turner either, once Turner added further wrestling programming to his station to try and make up for the sagging ratings. Turner added shows from Ole Anderson's Championship Wrestling from Georgia and Bill Watts' Mid-South Wrestling. McMahon had thought his WWF would be the only wrestling content on TBS. This situation continues into 1985, so we'll see the resolution to it when we cover Starcade 1985. For now, though, suffice to say, it doesn't go particularly well for the WWF, and it's a very important stop on the way to the formation of the true WCW. Starcade 84, The Million Dollar Challenge, aired on Thanksgiving Day, November 22, 1984, from the Greensboro Coliseum in Greensboro, North Carolina, in front of a crowd of 15,821. About another 26,000 watched over closed-circuit television. We open with a short video of the finish to Starcade 83's main event, showing the slightly awkward body press off the top that got Flair the win over Race. Bob Cottle and Gordon Soley welcome us to the show and build up the matches that they have, along with the $1 million prize for the NWA World Title match. Rather than the wonderful bowling alley backdrop that you were fond of last time, John, 
They're now sitting in a booth above the arena, with a ring visible through a window behind them. I thought it was actually a pretty cool look, uh, except for the points in the show where a fan walks by the window and stares in for a while or mugs for the camera. There's also a long period near the end where it's all black at the arena. Right, you see yeah. the reflection, which is a little odd, too. Yeah, when they have the lights off in the arena yeah. for some unknown reason. I like that it showed how long there, the pauses were. Like, there wasn't any announcing or anything. You know, do they, Mike, when they're talking in there, is it, do they hear that out on the ring? Or I mean, sometimes, like on TV tapings, stuff will happen between... Like, a, he will come out, they'll go to commercial break, and he'll sort of rile up the crowd, then they'll come back, like, no time would pass. But, no, there's nothing with the announced team, as far as I know. Okay. The few shows I've been to that were actually tapings of shows, I didn't hear the announced people at all. Alright. We go right to the first match, but at least we did get an introduction this time. Let's go to the ring. The ring announcer says that this is the premier wrestling event of the decade, apparently or the century, as he says the second time that he gives his introduction, before he shuffles through his notes and then asks the referee something. Did he lose his place right at the start of the show? That sounds like something I would do. <laughs> yeah, he kind of gone over that many things in 20 seconds. Yeah, I checked if uh, there were any dark matches on this show, and I don't think there were, so it's not like they've Nothing, done anything. No. This is literally your first page, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Our first match is Denny Brown versus Mike Davis for Davis's NWA World Junior Heavyweight Championship. Davis won the title at an event they didn't bother to show you on television. They just sort of told you it happened. And then they announced there was going to be a match for it, and then that's really all there is. They're on the last show separately, but they don't like, interact at all. Yeah. I'm used to modern shows where they have to like stand across the ring for them and like, make angry faces. Like, oh, we're going to get you. <laughs> but no, it's like they're not even aware of each other. I think we've said before, this is kind of the sports period of it. Mm. So it really is just, the storyline is, this guy's got the title, this guy's challenging for the title. Right. Yeah, that's it, I guess. It's a gift uh, most, yeah. Interesting note, uh, Denny Brown and Mike Davis, they're both from Florida. But this isn't the Florida-centric title, which we'll get later in the night. Mm. There's fast action to start, with Denny Brown in control, using whips to the ropes, arm drags, and some very nice flying head scissors to repeatedly take Davis down. Brown works an armbar in between further arm drags, along with a neat overhead throw and a fireman's carry. Eventually, Davis ducks as Brown runs off the ropes at him, and Brown falls over him, through the ropes, and out of the ring. He sells the back, and Davis actually goes out and helps him back in, even holding the ropes for him. Sportsmanship. Davis takes over with body slams and a backbreaker, but can't keep Brown down for the three. Davis tries some whips into the ropes, but Brown keeps countering with forearm shots as he comes back, including one where he hops up to the second rope and then rebounds off towards Davis. They trade control for a bit until they collide on another Irish whip and both go down. They slowly get to their feet, and Brown hits a forearm to send Davis into the corner, where he hits more forearms. Davis whips Brown into the corner and hits a belly-to-back suplex, bridging for the three count. Except that the ref hands the belt to Brown. Surprise. Even though the announcer proclaims Davis the winner and still champion. I I will give credit to Davis's reaction here. He looks totally stunned and he just bellows, what? Loud enough to be heard really far in the distance. Mm. I, I missed that when we were first watching because I was pretty much having the same reaction. Sure. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> so um, Soli and Caudle are confused at first, but eventually they explain that 
Brown got his shoulder up and Davis had his down. It's a really confusing ending for the first match. It actually gets worse if you look at it again, because if you watch the way it plays out, Davis does the move, and they're both down. The ref looks at him, not at Brown, and starts counting while staring directly at his shoulders, as if the other guy is not also down. Yeah. But there's nothing, no reason why you should not look at all towards the other direction. Right, yeah, he should be checking him still. Davis does show great sportsmanship again by going over to congratulate Brown. It was kind of cool to see that, even after a controversial ending. And uh, we did get a replay as well. There's actual replays this time, guys, uh, rather than no replays, but someone being thanked for replays. They're spoiling us. But uh, it doesn't really make things any clearer because it actually cuts off before the three, which is a recurring theme with the replays tonight. I don't get why they did that, but... Well, you know, they don't want to spoil what had already happened on this <laughs> show... Yeah, I got nothing. I'm fairly new to this early, early WCW. I'm used to watching later WCW or current wrestling like I do regularly. So I'm used to what a cruiserweight, which is what the term is now, is. I'm used to luchadors and Japanese wrestlers and people that wrestler in style. It's nothing really against them because they, they do a good job. But it just I don't know, it's not what I'm used to. So it's kind of hard for me to get into it as much as I, maybe I should be. I don't know. I'm, I'm too used to later stuff. So it doesn't quite feel like what I expect it to be. It's close to the idea of the later opening matches, mm-hmm. but it's not the same type of performers or, or same type of performance quite. Right. Exactly. If you didn't watch wrestling and someone brought Mike Davis, Denny Brown, and then Ric Flair out... You wouldn't go, oh, Ric Flair's obviously not the junior heavyweight. Whereas, you're looking at wrestling later, even WCW, it's, you know, Rey Mysterio, Psychosis, and then, then even Ric Flair, you go, okay, Ric Flair is obviously not the cruiserweight. Right. These guys are. Right, okay. I, I think everyone was surprised by this. Like, you know, the, the whole staging in the beginning where he's got this pile of paper he's flipping through, trying to, you know, the announcer's trying to get his place... And everyone's setting up. And then the the controversial pin and reversal. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just wondering if this is sort of something that they added at the last minute or, or, or what. But, I, I mean, I, I felt like it was, uh, you know, watching wrestling. I have always felt that to a certain degree there's a, a storyline and so-and-so is supposed to win or whatever. But with this sure. one, it's kind of uh, genuine. They're like, all right, these two people are going to show up and see what happens. Huh. <laughs> I, I could see that, actually, if it's one of the cases where they didn't inform the announcers of mm. the finish or things like that, because at least from uh, from what Tony Schiavone has said, uh, one of the announcers on the show that goes on to being the voice of WCW, he has been fairly open with the fact over the years that they didn't always tell him what was going to happen, and sometimes that gets you a good reaction from the announcers, and sometimes it gets you blank stares and confusion, right, <laughs> you know, yes. so... I thought it was a nice match, a pretty fast-paced one. Pretty smooth overall. A few of Brown's moves did get a little bit sloppy. The rebound forearm in particular kind of looked like it might have been intended to be a splash at first, and he just (laughs) improvised when he wasn't getting the distance he wanted. Could be, yeah. There was a little too much reliance on whipping each other into the ropes or corners. That seemed to get to be about every other move, and it got pretty repetitive. But overall, I liked it pretty well, and I I thought that the sportsmanship 
shown by Davis was actually really cool. It's rare in wrestling to see the wrestlers go outside and no one then tries to whip each other into the railing or the turnbuckle or anything like that. It's just, he just goes out there and says, hey, uh, come back in and holds the ropes for him. And yeah. it's like, oh, that's that's kind of a cool way of doing a face-versus-face match. The ending, though, yeah, that was awful. Hmm. Not a good way to end your first match. Just confuse everyone with the very first thing. You want your first ending on the show, I think, to be pretty clean so people can, can keep that momentum. And maybe they were thinking, oh, we'll shock them hmm. with with something and that'll make them pay closer attention. But I think it, it kind of saps, saps things of momentum for me. Coming in 1983, the title that they're fighting over here is held by a Japanese wrestler. I believe his name is Shinjiro Otani. I might be saying that wrong. Wikipedia. There must be some sort of dispute with the companies because suddenly they just say someone else won the title hmm. and then they're defending it. Hmm. A couple of champions later, we have Davis. And then obviously Brown wins on this show. Basically, immediately following this in 85, it goes back to being the original champion who wasn't actually beaten by anybody for the title. Huh. So the vice president of NWA is the head of All Japan Pro Wrestling. At this point, New Japan Pro Wrestling, which sounds somewhat as different, leaves the NWA, at which point they take the title off of Atani, who they just give it back to, and give it back to Denny Brown, because he wanted a Starcade. Okay. We go back to Tony Schiavone in the dressing room. Tony builds up that after winning the title last year, Flair has competed as champion all over the country, and he's still champion now. He did have a brief break in the middle of the year, as we discussed, but, you know, mm-hmm. he's, he's, he's still champion. It's technically a true statement. Yes. And we go right back out for our second match. This is Brian Adidas versus Mr. Ito. Interesting note here. He was definitely called Adidas on the show, but his name is apparently Adias when he shows up later in World Class Championship Wrestling. I kind of wonder if the shoe company maybe found out and sued or something and he had to change it. To be fair, it is spelled differently. Adidas is with an A and his is with an I, I believe. Or it's the other way around. Either way, oh, it's not okay. the same. Anyway. Yeah, I kept waiting for, you know, like a, a Mike Nike or a Joey Reebok or something like that to come on out. Chris Converse. <laughs> that that actually needs to be a yeah. wrestler's name. Drew Balance. There you go. There you go. That's going at that. And uh, Mr. Ito is known as the Japanese Terror, apparently. Mm. Brian Adidas gets monster cheers as the announcer notes that he's, quote, very popular. That seems to be an understatement. Apparently, yeah. My understanding is that he's a friend of the Von Erichs, Mm. so maybe that's carried over to here in some way. Some chain wrestling to start, with the two evenly matched. Adidas escapes a headlock from Ito and puts on his own, but Ito flips into a pin attempt before getting free. Ito gets control with an arm lock and pulls Adidas' hair to keep him from fighting free a few times, but Adidas escapes and gets his own armbar, hanging on through Ito's escape attempts. Ito does eventually punch his way free, and the two brawl for a few moments before Adidas catches Ito coming off of the ropes and lifts him on his shoulders for the airplane spin, which gets the three. Oddly, Adidas just walks right out of the ring after that, not even bothering to wait for the announcement of his win. The crowd's happy anyway. 
Well, you know, he's got to got to catch a bus back home, I guess, immediately during the show. I thought he left just so he could avoid some sort of retaliation, you know? Yeah, maybe, but it's just like, it's strange. He doesn't even, like, pump his fists in the air or anything. Just like, well, I'm done. Go back, collect my check. Well, he was stuck in the spin cycle for a while, so... Yeah, true. <laughs> nothing, nothing goes wrong. Nothing super impressive either. And I... I mean, I know more about Adidas just from watching shows, but he doesn't do a whole lot on the shows he's on. He fights Toy Blanche a couple of times, and Ito is literally just announced as being the match. He has no build-up or prior TV appearances, yeah. so... Yeah, it's two guys I don't really know all that well fighting briefly, then it just stops. Yeah. It's like they had a checklist to, like, yep, spin around. <laughs> yeah. Get out. <laughs> it was a really, really short match. Uh, there was some moderately pr- promising action. The chain wrestling towards the beginning is pretty good. The work around Adidas' armbar is, is, is all right. I did like one bit where uh, Ito tries to slam Adidas down to get out of the armbar, but Adidas just hangs on and flips him right over to keep it going. That was a pretty cool bit. But the match just ends really, really quickly, and I couldn't get a sense for what the, what either of these guys had. It just felt like... I got the start of the story, then it skips over the middle and just went straight to the end. It doesn't feel like it really adds anything anything to the show. It's could easily have been skipped. It's rare that I'm going to say you could completely cut a match and it wouldn't affect the show at all. Maybe the Carlos Cologne Duel the Butcher match from last year's show. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's like I said, nothing bad on the match. It's nothing can go. This is messed up here. This is not good there. It's all fine. Yeah. It just I have no context to anything and no reason to really get invested. Right. Just had to fill a time slot. Yeah. Sorry, guys. We needed a Japanese wrestler on the show, so that's what we got. Yeah, because we needed 11 matches on this show. <laughs> yeah. Post-match, Soli suggests that Adidas may be dropping a couple pounds to go after the World Junior Heavyweight title. Honestly, he did seem pretty nimble, so okay. But he also adds that Adidas might go for Flair's title instead. Third match is Mike Graham versus Jesse Barr, for Barr's NWA Florida Heavyweight Championship. It's really, really dark during the introductions for this one. Oddly, as I mentioned, we had the uh, World Junior Heavyweight match earlier with two guys from Florida. Mm -hmm. We are now having the Florida Heavyweight Championship, but while Mike Graham is from Florida, Jesse Barr is from Oregon. Yeah. So we got both competitors from Florida during the World Junior Heavyweight match, but not for the Florida heavyweight match. Can they can they trade titles? Yeah. <laughs> Graham starts off strong, catching Barr with several smooth takedowns, including one that transitions into a pin so fast, he actually yells to the ref to let him know that he's got Barr pinned. <laughs> Barr pulls Graham's hair and keeps Graham in a wrist lock via similar means through several escape attempts. The ref asks Barr, if he's pulling the hair, and Barr very sincerely shakes his head, sending his own wonderful hair flipping side to side. Mm -hmm. They trade control back and forth, with Graham largely trying to go after Barr's legs in preparation for his figure four. Once again, does everyone use that move these days? Barr repeatedly escapes attempts at that hold, and goes after Graham's arms. Soli tells us that Graham has a lingering pectoral injury that Barr's going after. Barr continues cheating to, to take and keep control, but Graham keeps fighting back. <laughs> At one point, with Graham in a headlock, 
Caudle tells us that Graham is having to figure a way to get out of the powerful tentacles of Jesse Barr. Is is Barr a Lovecraftian monster now? (laughs) Yeah, that is definitely a weird comparison. (laughs) Graham finally gets a shinbreaker, a lot of strikes to Barr's legs, and the figure four, only for Barr to escape again by getting the ropes. Graham gets a sunset flip, but Barr escapes, throws Graham into the ref, so the ref misses another Graham roll-up, and counters another pin with, with the aid of the tights. Finally, Graham gets an atomic drop, but Barr takes him down by the legs to get him into a pin and puts the feet on the ropes for the win. Barr leaves the ring almost as fast as Adidas did last match, but he at least takes time to brag about still being champion as he leaves. Well, I'll say, just comparing the two matches first, that the quick exit at least makes more sense. True. He's a bad guy that cheated, and, you know, he, you know maybe he's thinking, you know, if the ref looks at the, that replay, he might try and start the match again. But if I yeah. just leave, then he can't do that. And it's not like he KO'd Graham. Graham might come also chasing true, after yes. him or something. Yeah, so that makes some sense, yeah. But I thought it was definitely more positive in this one than the previous two. Which, again, not saying other matches were bad. It's just both of them really lacked those extra little things that you expect in wrestling matches. Whether it's someone singing to the crowd, whether they, you know, shout a catchphrase, you know, Sting has his, you know, his yell, Flair's got yeah. his woo. Little touches like that help you sort of connect to the to the match to the person two guys wrestling one guy starts you know yelling at the crowd you go okay and he's obviously the bad guy or one guy you know like trying to like stamp in the match trying to get trying to get the crowd to cheer for me okay he's the good guy this one definitely had that which is nice the priest matches just didn't have anything like that no i like that this one had more variety um, they all had their own repertoire of uh, moves, and they went back and forth, back and forth. It wasn't just uh, a gram or, or bar, but, you know, they all worked their way to the ropes. And as you know, if you touch the ropes, you know, you get the special powers and everything. Um, <laughs> of course. And not only did they uh, do that, but it, it also had the controversial ending where, you know, someone cheated. I was hoping they would do a reversal, like, you know, after they reviewed the tape or whatever and... Oh, there's never a review of the tape, John. Oh, okay. <laughs> Even if there's an instant replay, the referee's decision is final. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I thought it was a decent little match, if one that centered a great deal around hair pulling. Barr's just constantly pulling the hair to the point it got a little silly that he was able to keep denying it to the ref. <laughs> but it was fun watching him keep shaking that head and hair if is all the same. Sure. He also made a nice habit of accusing Graham of cheating to mm-hmm. distract from himself, which was pretty fun. Pretty good heel work there, and I definitely wanted to see Graham show him up. It helped that Graham did a pretty nice job of selling the holds and the hair pilling, if an extremely loud one. He uh, howled to the high heavens anytime his hair got pulled, which was fun. <laughs> the match built pretty effectively to the figure four from Graham, but it didn't really seem to mean much once he got it. I think... Um, Bar just kind of gets the ropes again in record time, and they just move on. Um, I did enjoy, however, that in the lead-up to the figure four, Bar tries to go for Graham's hair again, and Graham finally gets wise to it and just starts smacking him away really <laughs> hard. Like, nice do touch, not yeah. do that again. <laughs> really, really nice bit. Yeah, those, those things like that I really appreciate. Yeah. So the match has a really clear story for this one, which I think is kind of what you guys were saying. There's, There's more of a a plot to this one than in the earlier matches. Yeah. And they were more than capable of getting that story across. The ending sequence just felt a little bit flat. 
but nothing really wrong with it. It's just nothing particularly exceptional. Yeah, see that. There's a lot of tension for the title, mostly in Florida. At one point, the title was held up, which is not the same as being vacated. just means they're not sure who the winner is and make the same fight again. However, it is vacated later in the year when its then-champion, Hercules Hernandez, which was assassin number two without all his stuff on. He's holding that championship and apparently gets in a backstage fight with Wild McDaniel. I believe he, he's definitely stripped the title. I don't think he's actually fired, but he's... Yeah. So, there's a title being held up and title being vacated both within a year of time for this one title. <laughs> Shades of things to come. Is, is this one where this match where he changed the refs or is the next match? Uh, I, three think it's, I think it's the next match where we get the guy in the blue bodysuit instead oh, okay. of the normal ref outfit. Yeah, I didn't actually note down when that happened, though. So, oh, yeah, okay. let's mention it at this point. There's an odd blue bodysuit ref that I don't know... Why he's dressed like that, it must be from another organization that they've split the refereeing duties, and that's the outfit in that card, but... Yeah. Weird look for a ref. I can't remember if you didn't notice who the referee for the first three matches was. It's Earl Hebner. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah. I did not catch that at all. You will see him on most of these shows through 88. That is funny. He literally jumps to WWF, you know... Vague spoiler alert if you don't want wrestling for the last 30 years. For the whole Hogan um, and Andre match, we switched the twin referees. That's when he enters the company. That's interesting. I did not know that at all. Yeah, he was a ref okay. the entire time. I was like, that looks like Ro Hebner. I Googled it. I'm like, oh, it is Ro Hebner. That's why. <laughs> Our next match is Assassin number one, the shorter Assassin, mm-hmm. and Buzz Tyler. Versus the Zambui Express, that's uh, Elijah Akeem and Kareem Muhammad, with Paul Jones. And it's a tag team elimination match. Paul Jones brings in the Zambui Express at some point during 84. It's important because he loses assassin number two after he's unmasked by Jimmy Valiant. And during this point, he tries to help assassin number one. Who still is numbered, even though he's still the only one there. <laughs> yeah. I still understand that. That's rather strange, isn't it? I would at least, I would switch it, say number one assassin. <laughs> that's, that's just me. If I was, if I was calling myself, I'd switch that. I could see that. But he's trying to help him out, but his interference keeps backfiring. So finally, assassin number one just turns on him, whereupon he immediately sticks his new tag team on him. Buzz Tyler really doesn't have any interaction with the group before. So, originally this match is announced about three weeks before the show. It's something completely different. So, they announced they're having a six-man elimination body slam match. Where it's going to be the Mbui Express and Superstar Billy Graham against Buzz Tyler and... American the, Starship, the American, Yeah, the American Starship. <laughs> the great, great tag team name. Which is the original gimmick of Scott Hall. Yes. The week after that, they then announced that Superstar Billy Graham is the number one contender for the U.S. title for later on the show, and just sort of quietly pretend they didn't announce the match already. <laughs> Even on the last show, they don't really talk about this match happening. Although they get with Assassin number one is saying he's going to be out the rest of be Valiant for a different match. Yes. But then this this match kind of still happens. Okay. 
Can I just say that I really, really wish that they kept it as an elimination body slam match? Because mm-hmm. it would have been shorter. <laughs> That's true. It's not a particularly long match, but I could have no. done with less of it all the same. Yeah. You liked it, huh? <laughs> match of the night. You got that sense? Yeah. So this is uh, billed as a tag team elimination match, but it's also announced as a one fall match. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure how that works. You'd, you'd need at least two falls for it to be elimination, wouldn't you? You have to pin them both at the same time. Oh, okay. <laughs> is that how it works? I mean, technically, every normal tag team match is a one-fall elimination match. You pin one guy and eliminates the tag team. <sighs> it's just never called weird. that, but that's actually how it works. <laughs> Assassin and Buzz Tyler start out with some weird pointing taunts, too. Well, Assassin yells what I think he's saying is Greensboro over and over to get the crowd to cheer but it's just kind of a a weird moment where it's really hard to tell exactly what he's saying also it's weird that assassin is now a face yeah again he's he's a bad guy up until like three weeks before the show and then he turned on his manager because he not, he's not cheating correctly so it's not like i disagree with you cheating it's like be better at cheating yes exactly okay that makes sense as a as a good guy then <laughs> We start off with a big brawl, with all four men in the ring. Assassin and Buzz get the advantage, and the match proper starts off with Buzz and Kareem. Buzz has inherited Rufus R. Freight Train Jones's shaky knees dance, I noticed. <laughs> Buzz easily disposes of Kareem, and he tags in Elijah, while Buzz tags in Assassin. Assassin continues to dominate, and he and Buzz beat Elijah up in their corner. Elijah tags in Kareem, who finally takes control for a bit with strikes and chokes on Buzz. In the express trade-off, striking Buzz until Buzz regains control with some strikes, and all four end up brawling in the ring again. Buzz and Elijah end up outside the ring, and we see the ref counting, and then the ref turns to watch Assassin and Kareem in the ring instead. Assassin and Kareem collide, and Assassin falls on top for the pin. Post-match, Assassin goes for Paul Jones, but he runs away and takes cover by Elijah while Kareem rolls out to join them, and at that point we're finally told that, yes, Elijah and Buzz were actually counted out. Mm-hmm. Even Soli and Caudle sounded pretty confused about that for a little while. It's really not that interesting. It's, I mean, I have obviously more context to the story than you guys do, what little there really is. And it's, I don't know, again, it's like, Buzzstar especially is not bad. He's got a little bit of air of presence. Assassin number one tries to do that, which is a big change from last year's show where he's just a guy and he headbutts people. Zambu Express, you really can't do much with them. The other team only, only really works. Like, if they were a WWF team, you throw the Rockers against them, that kind of team. So they, you know, guys are running back and forth and they're being bumped off of. Yeah. That's the only way they work. Any other team, you'd be just bored to tears because they're just sort of walking around and punching each other softly and then falling over. Yeah. And yeah, it's, <laughs> the elimination aspect, especially when being promised a body slam elimination match is really disappointing because apparently it happens just off screen. The ref counts to like four and there are two people are eliminated without any announcement. And it's like three seconds before the pin. Right. It's also also super pointless as well. Yeah. I was surprised at Assassin's behavior as well. Having familiarized myself with him from previous showing. Maybe he was just doing, you know, acting differently as a ruse or, you know, yeah. To get in, I don't know. 
I mostly attribute it to Dusty backstage saying, hey, you're a good guy now. You got to dance. You got to shake around. This is what I do. Yeah. But I can't confirm that, obviously. It's like you have no character. Get get a character quickly. <laughs> and that's his best idea. <laughs> yes. Masking was a big thing with other superstars. Um, I can see that with like a, the luchadors. You know, like yeah. You can't... It's a real big deal there, yeah. Did they ever do that with Assassin later on? Or is that... Not to my knowledge. In fact, he shows up later as a manager and is still wearing his mask. Yeah, no, he... My understanding, he's never unmasked officially. Mm-hmm. At some point, he changed his gimmick, but changed a different mask gimmick. So he doesn't, like, lose a match, and then he's forced to do something else. Yeah. And just kind of stopped doing it. Yeah. This was not good. <laughs> there's no major screw-ups on anyone's part, but there's nothing of any interest either. It's just a bunch of basic strikes and people brawling and... Much like the first match from Starcade 83 that also involved Assassin number 1 and leg wiggling. That's um, true. It just never feels like the faces are in any real kind of danger whatsoever. Even when the Express land a few strikes on Buzz, he just fights them off and we go right to the finish from there. And it's a really confusing ending, like we mentioned, where the eliminations aren't clear. And uh, so that pretty much killed any thing that the match actually did have for me really dull match really bad ending i did not like this one at all i was thinking you know when the, you could have adjusted that and, and there's, i don't think there's any to be clear i don't think there's a situation where any combination of this makes a like amazing match must see kind of thing hmm. there's obviously a there's a low ceiling on this but that said if you didn't have the adidas um ito match because nothing really came of it Put Adidas and some other guy, smaller, fast-running, jumping guy, against the Express. Mm-hmm. So you could have, like I was saying, with you know, like a like a Rock and Roll Express kind of thing, or Rockers, where you have two stories. You have fast, agile guys, and you have slow, powerful, hard-to-knock-over guys. Yeah. If that had just been a straight match, that would have been better. Obviously, we can't really take Denny away from his uh, title match or anything, but... If you could get, like, Denny Brown and and Adidas into this, they could probably bump around for these guys, and they could bring the excitement, and those guys could just be there and look big and powerful and everything, and it would work. I think part of the problem with this match is the Zambuya Express don't even get to look big and powerful. That's true. They're just there, and they punch a few times, and then they just get their butts kicked. They're just there to be antagonists. <laughs> yeah, they're they're not... They don't really... They're just like props for the for the match for a little bit, yeah. To let Buzz and Assassin show their moves off, and Buzz and Assassin don't really have any moves to show off other than leg wiggles. So, yeah, I was actually a little angry after watching this match. Like, why is this? Why did you even bother with this? It's, yeah. it's so pointless. Um, any follow up from the amazing pointless match, Al? Um, yeah, I got a bunch of little things. Um, not too much with the people involved. The reason why I mentioned that is because the Zambu Express break up in 1985, pretty early in that Aww. year, in fact, yeah. So there's no, sadly, there's no great Zambu Express match at Stark at 85 we look forward to. Yes. Yeah. Once they both leave, they don't do a super amount of note um, outside of wrestling. Um, one of them, Kareem, which is obviously not his actual name, would find a wrestling school and train one notable pupil, New Jack. So yeah, uh, more reason for Bob to like the team. Without him, we wouldn't have New Jack. 
Oh, man. Assassin number one, we'll see a little bit of him on later shows, never in this much of a focus. And after he leaves wrestling officially, he deforms his own wrestling school called the Power Plant. Aha. Uh-huh. Which is where more notable wrestlers like Goldberg are trained. So a good counterbalance maybe yeah. to the New Jack thing for you. Okay. Buzz Tyler hangs around for about the next half a year or so in this company. He wins the middle lane title, hangs around for a while, and then in July abruptly quits Mid-Atlantic and wrestling entirely. <laughs> he is just gone. He's also gone with the title belt, because he claims Dusty Rhodes owed him money. Who knows? Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I don't know. He quits wrestling altogether and leaves with the belt. I assume they got it back at some point. So no one really long-term prospered out of this match, which wow. I guess is appropriate. Yeah. Okay. Amusingly, they cut to Caudle and Soli following that match while they're still reading their notes. <laughs> and Soli kind of looks up in surprise for a moment and then recovers quickly and talks about the upcoming interview with Dusty Rhodes. Soli and Caudle build up the Million Dollar Challenge again and review some of the match results so far. We go back to the dressing room for an interview with Dusty Rhodes, who is chilling in a chair with his jacket draped over him. You have been all over the world. You're one of the biggest stars in professional wrestling, if not the top name. The question is, is this the biggest night of your life? Well, Tony, throughout the history of wrestling, throughout this country, Dusty Rhodes and Ric Flair names have been etched in stone throughout the world. I told Ric Flair live on television, I said, people got to make a choice. The people have to come sooner or later, find out who is the greatest wrestler, who is the greatest man alive on this earth today, professional wrestler Ric Flair. I know you're listening somewhere in this building. The talking is over. There's no more talking. There's no more bobbing and show business around and driving your big cars and showing your big watches and your fancy house and your fancy diamond rings. Dusty Rose, the American dream, relaxing here, sitting here live in color by satellite throughout this world, telling you one thing, very shortly from now, one million dollars goes in my pocket, Ric Flair, the world's title goes in my pocket, Ric Flair, and you are going to be yesterday's newspaper, and let me tell you something else, everybody take heed, Joe Frazier, wherever y'all be listening, because I don't want you sticking your nose in my business, me and Flair, one million dollars, I'm resting, I have nothing else to say, about this thing except I'm the prettiest man living alive anywhere in the universe. That's it. One of my goals in life now is to tell someone that they're going to be like yesterday's newspaper and have it actually sound cool. Yeah. Do you think it sounded cool when Dusty said it? Oh, yeah. But... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you got to get that drawl, though. You got to elongate <laughs> words. got to do it right. Yeah, for me, I I love Dusty Rhodes interviews, and even with his oddly very chill pose with the jacket over him, (laughs) this one's no exception. He has tons of charisma, and he's got a great challenging tone. It makes it clear that he respects Rick for what he's been able to accomplish, (laughs) but he definitely believes he's going to win. He has some nice shots in there, too, about Rick showing off his wealth. I think Dusty's best when he plays up his uh, kind of common man gimmick, and that's, that's a good kind of nod to it. One thing for me, though, Dusty spends the entire interview shaking his finger at the screen. Feels like I'm getting lectured at school or something. <laughs> I mean, if you're the prettiest man alive in the universe, you can do what you want, I guess. I guess so. 
I love, yeah, he just goes through all this stuff for this, uh, for this interview, really challenging tone and everything. It's just like, oh yeah, one more thing, I'm really pretty. Where did that come from, Dusty? <laughs> He's confident. He's confident, yeah. confident as a, and as cool as a Cajun cucumber. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> craziness. Yeah. Good kind of craziness. Why is he called the American Dream again? That's just his thing. Okay. Dusty has like a billion and one nicknames over the course of his career. And yeah, American Dream is the one that really sticks. He also, I think, I think this year has claimed his bionic elbow from Greg Valentine as well. Uh, yeah, so I don't know if there was any angle that transferred that name or if that just was something they were always both doing. But, you know. Hmm. Next up is Manny Fernandez, the Raging Bull, versus Black Bart with J.J. Dillon for Bart's NWA Brass Knuckles Championship. So, I'll go over this a little bit later as well, but there's a weird story throughout this show in the build-up where they're clearly building up to a match between Tully Blanchard and Dick Slater, and separately building up Ron Bass and, and by association Black Bart as his tag partner. And Rick Steamboat, but then they just quickly reverse that for no seeable reason, which kind of leave Black Bart in kind of a weird situation because him and Ron Bass are technically the Mid Atlantic Tag Team Champions, mm-hmm. but they're both apparently also both singles champions. I mean, Fernandez, meanwhile, is Tag Team Champions Dusty Rhodes at this point as well. Now it's just like, well, you can't wrestle with Dusty Rhodes. Black Bart can't wrestle with Ron Bass and this and that. Yeah. So this match has kind of happened because he's sure available. This guy's also got a belt that is literally never mentioned before in any promo. He's never, he's never seen wearing the belt huh? that I recall. Weird. They just announced having a match at the Rattlesnake Championship. And I was like, oh, that that exists? I didn't know. <laughs> I had no idea this scene is. So yeah, yeah there's really no much story there. They interact at all. It's a weird, uh, a weird name for the title, the Brass mm. Knuckles Championship. I guess the idea of it is more of like um, what you'll get later with like the hardcore title. Yeah, I guess is the idea, but it's just an odd name to choose for it that I didn't quite get why you went for that particular one. It just uh, all sounds like Texas to me. Yeah, guess so. Manny Fernandez has a sweet sombrero as he uh, comes out, really, really sparkly. Fernandez chucks his sombrero out to the crowd, so I thought maybe it's cheaper than it looks, but Soli actually says it's worth $200, and somebody must be really, really happy now. I'd be happy to catch a $200 sparkly sombrero from somebody at Starcade. Would you wear it, though? I I probably would. I, yeah. gotta, I, gotta, I gotta admit, I would be sitting here wearing a sparkly sombrero if I, if I had one. Maybe just that night. Wait for Cinco de Mayo. Fernandez, much like Kabuki last year, has a pretty unique look and a really kind of great look in his entrance gear, but he takes most of it off to just kind of end up dressed like anyone else. Especially with this being a street fight, it seems like it might have been a good idea to keep some of that stuff on for a unique look. His small snatch of dyed blonde hair at the very bottom of the back of his haircut is unique, at least, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's foreshadowing wrestlers like Sting that would have the weird little rat tail, yeah. little puffed of hair at the back. But he doesn't actually have a rat tail. Yeah, it's yeah. just like, it's perfectly even with the rest of his haircut. It's just bl- this little snatch of blonde 
that I've I've hmm. I've specifically dyed this section of my hair. I don't understand. When you actually when it is, it's the reverse Scott Steiner. When Scott Steiner goes his black goatee and then dyes the soul patch blonde. Ah, there you go. Clearly, Scott Steiner learned from a Fernandez. There you go. Okay. Fernandez controls early on with various strikes, and we get an overhead shot that Soli, of course, makes sure to note as beautiful, though he doesn't specify just how far the cameraman is in the air tonight. Soli notes that neither man has a glass jaw, and that it's actually a detriment as it means that they're going to take more punishment before going down. Bart lands a few hard hits to Fernandez's forehead to get him bleeding, and Soli notes that scar tissue on Fernandez's forehead bleeds more easily. Fernandez gets back in control, and he sends Bart out of the ring, and jumps off the apron with an overhead punch. They get back in, as Soli notes that the hit out of the ring wasn't a DQ, only because of Brass Knuckles' rules. <laughs> Keep that in mind when we inevitably see a billion people getting clotheslined out of the ring mm. on later shows, and that's just never mentioned. Yep. Fernandez continues the beating with a big haymaker and an interesting rotating splash, and that gets Bart bleeding. Not the splash, probably the haymaker. Yeah, I'll do some things. <laughs> Bart gets control with a shot to Fernandez's crotch and lays in heavy strikes that keep knocking Fernandez down, only for Bart to drag him back to his feet. Bart eventually drops Fernandez's neck first on the ropes and shoves the ref away to get over his lasso, but Fernandez catches him with a roll-up for the three. So my first question is, does he need to strike the referee for the lasso? Like, is the lasso not legal? And the brass knuckles match yeah yeah you'd think that i think it's just like it's not so much a distraction as an irritation mm. but yeah it's kind of a we got a ref bump in a brass knuckles match yeah what <laughs> um yeah but my notes were brawling brawling blood decent finish <laughs> that was the extent of my thorough coverage. yeah yeah. yeah, I was actually surprised by the blood for, you know, like, you know, I expected it to either, you know, be an all blood or no blood event. Yeah, this is kind of taking the place of the Piper versus Valentine match, I guess, from the previous year, but not not as well. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I was just waiting for someone to lose an eye with the, uh, <laughs> you know, they, they they seemed to be, you know, they weren't pulling punches and, you know... Look ferocious at some point, but mm-hmm. I think that maybe I was just, I was still in the shock that they started bleeding, uh, apparently, over nothing. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, it was just a bunch of brawling for me. It's it's hard to really think of much to say about this one. Um, there is some character to it, I guess, so that, that, that kind of helped it. And Fernandez had a couple cool little spots. Overall, though, it's just two guys trading off punching each other and dragging each other to their feet so that they can punch each other again. And there wasn't a lot to maintain any interest here. I do kind of like Fernandez act. I, I, I think mm-hmm. I would like to see more of him in a different type of match and see if, and see if he has more, but um, there wasn't much to keep me invested in this one. Um, I do need to take a moment to mention that this match simultaneously has some of the best and the worst camera work of the night. Mm-hmm. There's a really, really great shot late in the match that used the overhead camera, and it shows Bart knocking Fernandez down and then hitting a huge jumping elbow drop, and it looks really, really cool uh, from that angle. But there's also two shots earlier on where we miss things. First, there's what seemed like it might be a cool little rapid striking combo that Fernandez does early in the match, but the camera's way too far away and showing Bart 
directly in front of Fernandez, so you get to see none of that. Mm, yeah. And later in the match, there's some kind of move that Fernandez uses to get back in control after Bart's been beating him up for a while, and we just completely miss it. It's just really weird to have really shoddy and really great visual work in the same match. <laughs> right. <laughs> At least there's good footage of them doing stuff off the ropes rather than just, you know, running and going off, you know, just bouncing off. Yeah, they don't, they at least doesn't get in a eternal loop of Irish whips or anything like that. But yeah, just not, a, a, again, another match on this show with just not a lot to it. Yeah. Nice story of Maven is when the title is, he loses in January. And then in March, he loses the tag titles he holds with Dusty. Aw. The mid-length tag titles that are currently, at this point, being held by Ron Bass and Black Bart are just fully uh, vacated completely. Just don't exist anymore by the middle of the next year. <laughs> so we definitely see, are seeing a lot of kind of changes in the title structure over the next year, it looks like. Yeah. Maybe things consolidating somewhat. They definitely, yeah, when we get to 86, 87, that definitely happens a lot more. But yeah, there's a little bit here and there where there's promotional championships that kind of just get less important. Yeah. The same way, there at one point, there was like a U.S. title for like ev- every other state in America, and they slowly whittled it down to just the one. Mm-hmm. So like you could have the United States Championship from Texas, which is different from the United States Championship from Florida or from, you know, Idaho. Yeah. But then having just one makes it a lot simpler. Yeah. Less confusing, for sure. They could do a cool graphic with like a a flag and, you know, you'd take the star off and put it on your belt. And, <laughs> you know, you could have, you know. I could see a, that. That'd be funny. A yeah. giant star-spangled belt once you're the Yeah. Oh, United that's States how they champion. should have formed the U.S. title is someone go around and win a belt from every every one of the 50 states and yeah. declare it the United States Championship. I think we've already got a United States championship at this point, but yeah, that would, oh, that'd be so great. <laughs> After the match, Soli notes that Fernandez has two titles, and we get a replay of the finish as Caudill and Soli point out that J.J. Dillon and Bart's plan backfired. Soli notes that we'll have a seven-minute intermission, and we'll have some highlights from Starcade 83 and some interviews. The only Starcade 83 highlight that we get, though, is the replay of the finish to the Flair versus Rates match again, so I'm not sure if that means that's the only highlight they had, or if they played the wrong video package. Both, probably. <laughs> probably. <laughs> After the extremely short highlight package, we go back to Tony interviewing Ricky Steamboat. Tony explains that Blanchard and the Long Riders injured Steamboat's back and asks him how he's feeling. Steamboat says that everyone's been looking forward to Starcade 84, and he starts off talking about previous issues involving the U.S. title tournament, but he says he's on a different path now. He ended up with Blanchard and his pals coming into his gym, hurting his brother, and then trying to hurt him just before Starcade 84. He goes over his injuries, including torn muscles, a bad bruise, and floating ribs. He mentions that he's been going to the chiropractor every day, but that it's only been two days. Steamboat says he's putting the pain out of his mind and focusing on Blanchard as the evening is so important to him that he and Blanchard have both put up lots of money. Steamboat says he doesn't want Blanchard to know how bad he's hurt, so maybe he shouldn't have explained it then. Maybe not. 
Blanchard will know that he's been down before, but no matter what, hurt or well, a wrestler still carries on. Blanchard is nothing but a yellow-bellied coward, and he can't go anywhere because of the contract. Steamboat will remember that Blanchard tried to keep him out of Starcade 84. I thought this was a longer interview than Steamboat tried last year, and it feels a lot less focused and snappy than he managed before. He's in pain. Yeah, he is in pain. (laughs) It's still not a bad interview. He has a few good lines. I particularly like his closing about remembering that Blanchard tried to keep him out of Starcade. You know, not just the fact that he was attacked, but the fact that it's before this big, important event that he really Mm -hmm. wanted to be a part of. Steamboat always at least always does feel genuine. Oh, yeah. So you get a feeling, even if it's not a polished interview, you get he gets the point across. He gets he gets you liking him during it and feeling for him. But yeah, there's some oddities in it, like him saying that that he doesn't want Blanchard to know how much pain he's in almost immediately after he explains his injuries in detail. Mm -hmm. And uh, him building up that he's been going for the chiropractor every day for two days. (laughs) Just just like, (laughs) that's a great line. (laughs) But yeah, there's emotion in there and it it does help build the match. It's definitely longer and it's less effective in general, but there's... If you cut it down, just the bullet points, it it still works. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense to hear him call someone else a yellow-bellied coward. It seems like he would be, you know, have a little bit more sense of sportsmanship about it. Even though he has been treated poorly, I just think that normally he doesn't have to do name-calling. He's going to let, you know, his skills speak for him in the ring. I can see that, yeah. It doesn't feel like that quite fits Steamboat. He should be the respectful challenger, generally. What's the great insult that you sent me that he has, though, midway through, Al? He's trying to antagonize Tully Blanchard into coming to fight him. So he says, I believe the quote is, um, your mother sucks eggs and your father eats refried beans. <laughs> he goes, how do you feel about that? And he walks off. <laughs> yeah. So as you said, John, steam, uh, insult's not really Steamboat's game, I don't think. <laughs> Tony says that he's going to find Blanchard to talk to him, too. We go back to Soli and Caudle, and Soli says that Steamboat is articulate. I'm not sure that I agree in particular this time. And that Jim Crockett has said that he's intense and fired up, and that Blanchard should have a tough evening. Caudle notes that due to the contract, Blanchard can lose the title if he's disqualified or counted out. Uh, So he's lost the champion's advantage, basically. Then we go back to Tony, and Tony's with Tully Blanchard and James J. Dillon. Tony asks if they were trying to injure Steamboat before the big match, and J.J. Dillon denies any nefarious plans. Dillon objects to the end of the Fernandez match and says that people are trying to slander him, the Long Riders, and Blanchard. He says that Steamboat is just crying because he knows that Blanchard is the superior wrestler. Blanchard agrees and says that Steamboat keeps having to make excuses because Blanchard keeps taking him to the time limit. He taunts Steamboat over the money that he had to put up, and says that it's sad Steamboat has had to make excuses. He says Steamboat's fans are going to cheer him anyway, no matter Steamboat's injuries, but Blanchard is going to win, and then he's going after the world title. Tony says that the attack on Steamboat had to give Blanchard the advantage, and J.J. Dillon wonderfully just glares at him, fists on hips like, Dang it, Shivani, why won't you buy our BS? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I really liked this one. I think Dylan in particular was really great as he twisted the situation around to make it look like people are conspiring against him. And Blanchard did a great job as a hateable heel, ignoring his own misdeeds to try to make it look like Steamboat was the whiner and the coward. 
Yeah. I definitely wanted to see Steamboat beat this man. Uh, I like that he's blaming Steamboat for being so backstabbable. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> like, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and they didn't make a, a boots if the boot fits uh, reference during the whole thing, so I was a little disappointed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like you're saying before, I could have shortened Steamboat one to just saying, you know, they hurt me, but I'm going to still come back at you. So then they would feel even, seem even worse because he's simple, respectful, you know, this is hard, <laughs> but I'm going to fight through it. And then they're just completely dismissive and insulting. Yeah. Maybe even more effective that way. But it still works the way it is. They turn up their insults enough that Steamboat going low still feels like him going high in comparison, I think. Oh, yeah. But yeah, I think it'd be a little bit of a stronger comparison if he'd ironed his out a little bit more and kept the insult out of it and just been the the respectful challenger still, maybe. Exactly. Yeah. Soli points out that Blanchard is already looking beyond this match, planning on challenging for the world title, but that he best pay attention to Steamboat thought that was a, a nice little bit of commentary there from Soli. Soli and Cottle discuss the upcoming Wahoo match as a fan glances in the window, and Soli notes that they'd take a long time just to list the titles that superstar Billy Graham has won in Kung Fu, Karate, Jiu-Jitsu, and weightlifting and powerlifting. I, 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 bow, I buy the last two. Sure. <laughs> I'm not sure about the previous three from looking at Superstar Billy Graham later, and the condition of his martial arts chops. Yeah, so it's a whole adult thing is really weird. If you watch him really in his career, he's very much proto Hulk Hogan. He has tie dye. He's got the big Fuminju mustache. He has the hair, mm-hmm. and then he leaves wrestling, then comes back as his head shaved, and now he's doing karate. And it's just it'd be like if Hogan did that. If Hogan left, if like Hogan debuted in WCW, suddenly doing karate. Yes, he'd be like, but. But I know who what? you are. Yeah. yeah, it's very really weird. That's <laughs> yeah, very strange. Our next match is Paul Jones versus Jimmy Valiant in a Tuxedo Street Fight Loser Leaves Town match. Because we needed that level of complexity for a Jimmy Valiant match. So this, this is kind of a weird one. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. Understatement. Granted. Um, so there's a bunch of matches in this show where... I guess a lot of the story is even further back than I watched. Like with the Steamboat one, they talk about stuff happening a few months ago. They referenced the U.S. title tournament in yeah. like March and April. I appreciate that it's long-term, but they don't even just summarize on the later shows what's happening. So stuff like this was really weird because Jimmy Fallon doesn't actually show up until the very last show. Um, and they play a video package explaining how he had unmasked assassin number two becomes Hercules, but then he makes no appearances over like three or four shows, and then suddenly he's in a loser leaves town match, and also a tuxedo match, which I guess because Paul Jones over tuxedo, he's gonna like, I guess he's gonna game, but he never has a promo like you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna dress up like you and do it better than you or something like that. I just sort of dump all this stuff on you on the second to last show. Oh no, by the way, Assassin number one is now gonna be in his corner, also wearing tuxedo. We've seen two Jimmy Valiant matches, and both of them revolve around a Lose the Leaves Town match. That's his gimmick. Yeah, I guess so. He's just continually being threatened with leaving. <laughs> now, yeah. 
do tuxedo street fights have, I mean, like, you know, the everyday kind have like special rules in wrestling? So that's something that was really confusing to me watching this because normally when you see something like tuxedo street, a tuxedo match or something like that, the idea is you strip off the tuxedo to beat the guy. That is like the first person to lose X amount of his tuxedo um, Mm -hmm. has lost the match. That's clearly not the rule in this match. No. Because tuxedo parts come off very freely, <laughs> as I'll get to in a moment, and no no one loses the match as a part of it. So it's just it's like a, it, this is just a normal match. They just happen to be well a normal street fight, loser leaves town match, but they just happen to be wearing tuxedos, which is strange. I know tuxedo matches were f- fairly common. They're usually managers fighting other managers, mm-hmm. but yeah, they're never they're never. St- they're almost never street fights, and they're almost never a wrestler against a manager. Yeah. Even if they were, they need to be a wrestler. We get actual entrances and entrance music this time, which was such a shift that I actually thought this was a video package rather than the start of the match. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Jones has a very nice tuxedo, complete with a Dracula cape, mm-hmm. and he's flanked by one of the Zambui Express again. Jimmy Valiant is led to the ring by the tuxedo-clad assassin number one, and he wears a suit coat and suit pants over a t-shirt with the pattern of a tuxedo shirt on and a bow tie on it. I kind of liked that, actually. Jimmy Valiant kisses the ring announcer before the announcements. The lights are really dark as the announcements begin, but finally come on so we can, you know, see. The ref argues a bit with Jones to get the express ma- member out of the ring, but the assassin leaves more willingly. Valiant easily dominates and batters Jones, then chokes him with a small rope, ties the rope around his neck and around the top rope to immobilize him, and strips him of his tuxedo, as Soli and Caudle nervously comment about this being a family show and them possibly needing to cut away, depending on where Valiant goes with this. Mm, Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Eventually, Valiant does indeed strip Jones down to his wrestling tights and shoes, but Jones gets free while Valiant is celebrating and gets a few hits in. Valiant just shrugs him off via shaking legs and arms and gets a sleeper hold on the bleeding Jones, whose blood runs down Valiant's white sleeve. In a more dramatic match, that'd be quite the shot, actually. Jones is clearly out, and the ref drops his arm three times but just kind of ignores the third fall because the express member has gotten up on the ring apron. The ref goes over there to deal with him, and Valiant goes over and hits the ref from behind. Soli tries to tell us that he was going for the express, but Valiant really did just seem to kind of aim for the ref. Yes, he did. Assassin comes in to deal with the express, but J.J. Dillon sneaks in and clocks Valiant with an object of some kind in his hand, and Jones gets the pin on an unconscious Valiant. Valiant still lies unconscious as we go to Soli and Caudle, who explain that luscious Jimmy Valiant must now leave the promotion, because Jimmy Valiant has a billion names. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it was nice into my notes. I wrote down nothing that interesting. Mostly just Paul Jones having his clothes ripped off. Cheap finish. <laughs> I try to be concise. Yeah. My vote points there. Yeah. That kind of captures it, doesn't it? it, it but, uh, yeah, you, you summed it up succinctly, but it, it's just all over the place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and nothing really, there's nothing solid about it. It was just like, oh, well, let's see what else we can do. Yeah, yeah. It's just, man, it wasn't really a match. No. You know, 
it's an actual wrestler beating up a non-wrestler for a while. It's mercifully short, but it's kind of hard to get behind Jimmy Valiant when he binds the defenseless man to the ring ropes by his neck to beat him up and humiliate him by stripping him of his clothing. Yeah. It's, it'd be one thing if, if it was like, it's a tuxedo match, but Valiant starts out fighting him straight, and then Jones just like cheats and cheats and cheats and cheats, and that eventually ticks him off where he does not that level, but, you know, something to embarrass yeah. him. But he just, he like immediately goes for dirty, dirty tricks against non-wrestler. So who's the good guy again? Really weird, pretty bad match. I will give credit to Valiant on one thing, which is that when he's hit by the uh, object at the end, he totally sells complete unconsciousness for the remainder of the camera footage of him. Yeah, so there's no point where he like gets up right afterwards or anything like that. He is out. Uh, so that was that was kind of nice. And also, like we said, what is the tuxedo stipulation here? It's just what they're wearing. It doesn't affect the match in any way whatsoever. Yeah. You could use it to have Paul Jones, like, hide things to gain the advantage over Valiant with in his ducks or something like that. You know, grab a object out of his pocket or something, And but they they don't use it at all. Yeah, if, I feel like if this had any TV buildup in the recent time, this would have only have some context. Like, you know, Paul Jones, like, you know, wouldn't won't fight Jimmy Valiant because he's not classy enough. Jimmy Valiant shows up in tuxedo or something, just, yeah. or even that shirt, you know, and then sets up that part of it and then other stuff. But no, nothing's this, this is both apparently important, but also kind of really stupid. Yeah, it feels like this is the end of like some kind of gigantic epic plot that we just haven't gotten at all. And may, like you said, maybe it's that it was on stuff from much earlier in the yeah. year that and we're just, you know, we're kind of doing the... The, the the last few shows before a Stargate, right. just to try and get it. I also would note, it's kind of, kind of funny that Zambu Express is a two-man team, but he comes out with only one of them. Yeah. Like, was one of them just not, not feeling it? Like, I'm they tired just, from the previous show. They just agreed to, you know, Assassin's coming out, and there's only one of him, so, even though he's still called number one of two, but... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's another one that I was not happy was on the show, <laughs> to be honest. Well, I have good news, news and follow-up for you, Bob. Timmy Valley is not actually gone. He'll be back next year. Yeah, I kind of figured. Yeah, weirdly, you, you joke that this is like the end of the Big Epic Few. This thing is actually like barely the beginning. Oh, my god! This run for like a couple of years, I think. I don't know how much on the Starcade, but from reading on Wikipedia about it, this goes on for a while. Uh, by different guys under Paul Jones' tutelage. I'm very done with Jimmy Valiant, so I'm not pleased to hear he's coming back at this point. He's got one more show at least to try and win you back. Yeah. We'll see. Give him a shot. Following the match, we go back to Tony again, and this time he is with Ric Flair. Woo. Okay, thank you very much, Gordon Soley, and it's always a pleasure to be standing beside this man, the heavyweight champion of the world, Nature Boy, Ric Flair. And it's hard to say that you could be any better than you were one year ago at this time when you won the title. However, you have to be because you wrestle the top competition every night of your life uh, and you're still the world heavyweight champion. But tonight, it's not only for the title and a man you know very well, the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, it's for $1 million. Well, Tony, the greatest honor of any, to any wrestler in the world today is to be the world heavyweight champion. Only one honor greater than that, that's to win the world heavyweight championship and hang on to a fair period of time. This is Greensboro, North Carolina. I won the title here before. I've been all over the world where the people like me or dislike me. 
They know that when I get in the ring, they're looking at the best wrestler, the most qualified athlete today to be called the World Heavyweight Champion. Dusty Rhodes, $1 million, Tony. The biggest purse ever put up for professional wrestling matches, as far as I'm concerned, any other purse for any sport of all time. A million dollars cash. Ric Flair is going in that ring, brother, gunning. And Dusty Rhodes, you lay over there as laid back as you want to, Daddy. I know you're watching me right now. You better be half the man as you've told these people you are because you're jumping on the number one stud in all of professional wrestling. Last year this time, I stood with this man right before the match with Harley Race, and I said, he is ready. And I can say that once again this year. Ric Flair, the world heavyweight champion, is once again ready. Uh, Ric Flair's found his character, guys. Hey! <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's not 100% of the way to the Flair that we'll come to know. He doesn't completely lose his mind in his promos yet, but he has so much more charisma this year, and he's got some of that arrogant champion thing coming across already. Mm-hmm. The ending line that he gives is particularly good. The, Dusty, you better be half the man that you've told people that you are. Mm. That's so good. That is a good line, yeah. Much, much more developed personality than last year. I was really happy to see that. Definitely good to see uh, Flair building up from where he was last year to where he is now. Yeah. He's, uh, I think he's still modest. (laughs) He's very... I'm not going to say absolutely respectful of Dusty in this promo, but he feels like he still is acknowledging that Dusty is a threat. And most he's passive aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's a really interesting development to see with him. I'm curious to see how quickly he'll develop into the full on complete over the top Ric Flair. But it was it was really cool to see how much he's changed. I like when they, um, in the beginning, you see him just, I would normally say it was someone pacing, but it looks more like Ric Flair's prowling. Yeah, true. <laughs> he, I can see that. He's, he's like stalking something in the background. For yeah. Like two shots before this. Yeah, I guess it's supposed to make him look brooding, but it doesn't come off that way. It just looks goofy. <laughs> Soli and Caudill say that Flair is always ready, but the pressure has to be building. They build up that that title match is worth a million dollars, but that the champion also gets endorsements and travel and such that are worth a lot of money, too. There's a lot to desire about being champion. Our next match is Dick Slater versus Ron Bass with J.J. Dillon for Bass's NWA Mid-Atlantic Heavyweight Championship. We have the weird parallel stories that don't seem to intersect at all. Up until the last show, there's no... Uh, Dick Slater, Ron Bass, or Black Bart interaction. Hmm. He's clearly got a thing going with Tully Blanchard. They just come back and Tully Blanchard's in his face about it, helping him, this and that. But then they announce two matches being different. And he throw into a tag match the night before, and now suddenly he's fighting for a title that he's seemingly not even interested in. I mean, I'm sure he wants it because it's, it's in front of him, but yeah. he said nothing about wanting it before. We're going to Ron Bass is personal. It's just Ron Bass is the title, and I guess you get to have fight for it instead of Steamboat does. Huh? Yeah, I was kind of thought to be more to it, but no. I mean, you'd assume this one would definitely show up on the Mid Atlantic show because it's the Mid Atlantic Championship. So. Oh yeah, no, they make a point of showing that Dick Slater is back. Yeah. And he's immediately getting into stuff with Tully Blanchard. There's in like five shows they watch. There's no paths crossing between the two of them. Hmm. 
Strange. Yeah, I don't quite get it. Uh, we get the same entrance music again as Slater and Bask simultaneously come out to the ring. Slater is dominant to start, alternating between striking, working on a headlock, and running outside to chase J.J. Dillon. He comes back to the headlock, though, and solely notes that Dick would, quote, fight a buzzsaw and give it the first two rounds. <laughs> I would definitely be a bloodbath. I'm, I'm not entirely sure, again, what that means, but, you know, it sounds intense. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, I'm not sure I would want to see Dick Slater try and put a headlock on a buzzsaw. That seems hazardous to his health. Yeah, I wouldn't know it wasn't. <laughs> Knocking Bass out of the ring, Slater stops himself from going for Dylan again, and instead crawls on all fours over for a headbutt on a returning Bass. He tries to stomp Bass in the face, and the ref actually catches his foot, which lets Bass take control with heavy strikes, especially a vicious knee strike to the head. Slater ends up tangled in the ropes, and Bass and Dylan both start hitting him, the latter with the referee distracted as he bounces back and forth on the ropes. <laughs> the ref eventually glances over, and Dylan just cheerfully gives him a wave, acting really innocent. <laughs> Bass keeps hammering a daze Slater, who sells being so groggy that he can't even tell where his opponent is, swinging lazily in the air in the wrong direction frequently. Slater tries a comeback, but an eye rake from Bass and some more strikes from Dylan stop that. Slater starts stumbling around the turnbuckles, and Bass follows, catching up at each corner to land some punches. Slater manages to dodge out of the way and get Bass into the corner, and starts firing back. The ref comes over to try to get them to break, but Slater just grabs him by the hair and flings him out of the way, then hits a belly-to-back suplex to Bass, going for a pin. There's no ref, so Dylan comes in and kicks Slater, who no-sells, as Dylan freezes in fear. Slater body-slams Dylan, sends him out, body-slams Bass, and hits a leg drop to go for a pin, but the ref taps Slater on the shoulder. Slater thinks he's won, but the ref is actually entirely justifiably disqualifying him. Yeah. So Bass wins the match. Dylan comes back in to celebrate, so Slater beats him up, beats Bass up, and poses to cheers. So other than the finish, I really liked it. I haven't seen a whole lot of Dick Slater. I've seen more than John has, obviously. Or like the one tag match last year. Yeah. But I haven't seen a lot of him solo, and it's nice to see what he can actually do. His uh, crazy unhinged character definitely reminded me of Dean Ambrose today. I was I was going to say that, yeah. I was thinking I watched it the first time for sure. But I'd be curious to see how much that really influenced directly because it's very very similar. He doesn't do a rebound clothesline out of it, but he does the get caught in the ropes and kind of rock back and forth. He does thing yeah, that was... Ambrose is pretty good about, and they actually look similar. They at do, points. yeah. The yeah. hair, especially, yeah. There's a lot of interesting similarities there. So it, it was nice seeing him in a singles match, seeing what he actually can do at this point. It's a shame that they can't give you a clear finish on their biggest show of the year. Yeah. If I were reviewing everything but the finish, which I know you can't do in a wrestling match, it'd be really, really good. But yeah, the finish takes away a lot of it because it mm-hmm. just kind of stops. It, I mean, it fits the character, but it, I don't know. I feel like it could have done a different way for that. Yeah. I'm actually, like, surprised about the ref. You know, the ref was tossed. <laughs> but wasn't the ref in, like, one or two matches before this also, like, like assaulted as well? And it didn't didn't change the outcome of the, the match? Well, there's the point where Jesse Barr, like, shoves Mike Graham into the referee. 
it clearly isn't accidental, but you could reason that the ref thinks it's accidental. Mm-hmm. So that mm-hmm. that's why there's not a disqualification there. Was there another one? <laughs> the tuxedo match had some reference. Oh, right. Well, I mean, but that's a tux match. So, mm-hmm. But they still, you know, it, it was, apparently was a pinfall match. Yes, true. And they didn't use weapons, really. But yeah, I, I think in this one, it's just like, there's absolutely no way that you can sell that as an, ac- as an accident. He clearly intentionally reaches over, grabs the man by his hair, and chucks him. Mm-hmm. Normal ref bumps you can kind of sell as, oh, he accidentally ran into him, or oh, he intentionally accidentally ran into him. Yeah. But with this one, it's just like, no, this was blatant. Yeah. <laughs> It was entertaining, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, the, the match was, you know, upbeat, quick. Yeah, it's it's another brawl, but it feels like a better brawl. There's more character for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mostly Slater, but Ron Bass is nothing against him. He's technically sound in the match, and even there's not a whole lot of character to him, you can tell by his general mannerisms, and aided by Dylan, that he's a bad guy and not, not to be liked. Yeah. It's a brawl, but... It's a brawl with an actual story to it, mm-hmm. like a solid storyline of, you know, they start out with Slater wild and unpredictable, but maybe getting himself in trouble by going after Dylan and stuff. Bass being more focused, but, you know, this kind of big bully type of character. They they kind of work a storyline of Dylan repeatedly trying to cheat on Bass's behalf in there, and it all works pretty well, I think. The opening's a little bit weird. It does... It, there's a bit where Slater's kind of outside the ring for a bit and, you know, just gesturing at Bass and feels like he's doing the cowardly stalling thing almost, <laughs> but the crowd's really totally behind him still. So it's just kind of a, a bit of an odd moment to me, um, especially with Bass, like yeah, saying, get in and fight me, get in and fight me. And you're just like, wait, which is the good guy? Which is the bad guy here? And then it becomes clear when Dylan starts trying to cheat, mm-hmm. but Slater definitely, like you said, had a lot of character. I love there's one bit where uh, he's got the headlock on Bass and Bass tries to roll him into the pin that we mm-hmm. see a lot. And Slater gets out of that and keeps the headlock on and and gives Bass a noogie. Yeah. I, like <laughs> I was that, like, yeah. what? <laughs> oh, that was a pretty fun bit. Mm-hmm. For me, the real standout of the match was Dylan. I sure, sure. loved his like innocent act in front of the referee. And I loved his fearful like frozen reaction when Slater when he kicks Slater at the end and Slater just glares at him for it and Mm -hmm. then gets up and batters him Dylan was fun I think my only issue with the match like I said is the finish I could have seen you doing something where maybe Dylan and Hydran the ref and there's like a pause and then Slater decides to you know clothesline the ref to hit him and they get DQ'd it just feels weird that I get that he's being antagonized, but it's weird that he just gets all DQ'd uh, sort of on his own. Yeah, I feel like, I think it, it worked fairly well to me in that it's it goes with his wild persona that he's had, where sure. he clearly spends the early part of the match not really thinking through his actions. Yeah, sure. So, for me, the ending actually worked pretty well. I didn't I didn't really mind it, I don't think that much. But I, th- I think my mindset is that they could have... It could tie that to the earlier part of the match and also to Dylan talking about having issues with the ref in the Black Bart match. Mm-hmm. So he go, well, you know, the ref's, ref interference distraction is going to hurt me. I'm going to use that to my advantage and then yeah. do that. It worked for the story. I wish you'd have clean finishes on your biggest show of the year, which, mm-hmm. but yet yeah, it is what it is. Right. 
this one actually kind of make made me like JJ like the other yeah. ones. Other matches didn't I didn't have that feeling about him, but he he played his role pretty well. Post match, Caudle and Soli discuss the ending and note that Slater did have Bass pinned for long enough for a win, if only he hadn't thrown the ref away and gotten himself DQ'd. Caudle says he's got to at least feel good about getting some hits in on J.J. Dillon, and Soli sternly notes, yeah, that's not going to help his pocketbook, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, we get the national anthem. Like, four matches from the top of the card, for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> the crowd chants USA as the flag is shown on screen. The cameraman cannot keep the shot still for this. It is wiggling. Or it, like, I was getting motion sickness watching this thing. The anthem this time is instrumental, performed quite nicely on a trumpet. Mm-hmm. It's, like I said, it's an even stranger place for the anthem than last year. At least last year it highlighted the main event, but this year it's randomly done before the fourth match from the end. It does make a little bit more sense when you see who comes out for the next match. It's uh, the kayfabe Russians, Ivan and Nikita Koloff. So our next match is Ole Anderson and Keith Larson, accompanied by Don Kernoodle, versus Ivan and Nikita Koloff. In the build-up to this, Don Kernoodle was a bad guy. It's a hard name to say. Don Kernoodle. Okay. Yes. <laughs> it's a fun name to say, if nothing else. He's a bad guy teamed up with uh, Nikita Koloff. They're tag team champions up until they they have the match with Fernandez and Dusty Rhodes. There's a funny bit where he's basically being goaded into the match by Manny Fernandez, who tells him to... Um, to sign the contract and put his John Henry on there. <laughs> it's not the right <laughs> That's name. That's not the expression, yeah. Yeah, no. So they have a cage match, and he I th- think he's actually even the one pinned, but the Russians turn on him because he agreed to the cage match, and they think that's why he lost. So they, they beat him up, this whole angle where he stretched out, and his parents even walk into the ring. They do a promo where he's at home in bed with the neck brace on, like, I'm not sure I'll be back in wrestling. He does a later promo saying that he made a call to Ole Anderson, the guy who helped get him into wrestling in the first place, and Ole Anderson's going to find a partner. They got to Ole Anderson in a promo where he I, he's supposed to be mad. Like, you know, my student was beaten up. He may never recover. His livelihood had been taken away. But he just really sit chill, sitting back in a chair, <laughs> Maybe he's going for like a like a Taken style, really calm. I'm gonna get you. I'm not mad. I'm just I'm in t- serious. But it, kind I don't of know, a Jake it, Roberts type. Yeah, of promo. yeah. It's not a bad promo. It doesn't feel the level of intensity hmm. that I would think for this story. And then going into it, in the final show, Ole Anderson sends him a telegram. It kind of dates the show a little bit. <laughs> To tell, yeah, send him a telegram to tell him who his mystery partner is going to be, who is Keith Larson, who is the brother of Don Carnoodle, who I think, I don't know if that's kayfabe or reality or not. I'm not actually sure, yeah. They treat it as a, a real life thing, and they explain that Larson goes by that name, so he doesn't, like, sort of profit off his brother's success and be his own man. Although, to be fair, if I'm supposed to believe his first name is Keith, I feel like Keith Carnoodle is not a good wrestling name. Oh, no, that's an awesome wrestling name, man. Oh, okay. <laughs> to each his own. Yeah. But I could see... I, I'd, I'd like it better if it was like Kenny Carnoodle. Mm-hmm. 
I wish they associated it with like a, a place of, of of the Windy City canoodles. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's also a weird bit in the build-up where Kanudo comes out with his brothers before the match is officially announced, and his mother, but not his father, and they talk about how his parents have been with them this whole time, and then they wait a few minutes, and they finally go, oh, by the way, your dad's not here because he, like many people, has to work, which is fine, and then they play a video packet of him, but it's weird that they bring three of them, like, two of them out in person and then play a video package, rather than just do a video package for all three of them. Yeah, yeah. It's an oddly structured thing. Weird. The Colonel initially is not happy that his brother's in the match, because he's afraid he's going to hurt just like he is. But ultimately, he goes along with it, They coming for revenge against those Russians. All right. Ole Anderson and Keith Larson are, as you mentioned, accompanied by Larson's brother, Don Cranoodle. He's injured and on crutches. You said Larson uses a different name because he didn't want to benefit from Carnoodle's name. Yes. I like to think that it's actually because he was embarrassed that Carnoodle couldn't handle properly predicting match winners last year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like five shows from now, you'll still be on that. I know. Oh, I, I, if, if we see Don Carnoodle <laughs> every time, I will bring that up, I swear. Fair enough. <laughs> the arena is bathed in red light as the Russians come out to the Russian national anthem carrying chains and wearing red shirts with yellow text that say Russia number one. They get monster booze. Oh yeah. Cold War, baby. I do want to just point out that Larson's robe and Oli's trunks are also both red. Mm-hmm. Just, just saying. Mm-hmm. Anderson and Larson charge to start and tear off the Russians' propaganda shirts, then knock Nikita out of the ring. Oli goes to his corner, Nikita to his, and the match proper starts with Larson versus Ivan. Larson quickly gets the advantage, and after a quick pinfall attempt, starts working on Ivan's arm. He and Oli trade off to keep that up for quite a while, but keep a fast pace the whole time and mix up their moves. Ivan keeps trying to get to his corner, but gets dragged back. Ivan actually begs Larson to stop at one point, but he won't actually concede the match when the ref asks. Soli notes that Oli and Larson are doing to Ivan what was done to Don Carnoodle. The trading continues, and just as the announcers are noting that Nikita hasn't been in yet, Ivan rakes Oli's eyes and tags Nikita. Nikita batters Oli and gets a bear hug. It starts elevated, and Oli screams and struggles, but Nikita eventually sets him down and just keeps the hold on. Oli finally escapes with a cool little chin buster where he wraps his arms under Nikita's and lifts him just enough to smash his own head into the bottom of Nikita's chin and crawls for his corner. He has to shake off his dizziness to make the tag. Larson comes in with a lot of fire, but gets hurt as Nikita dodges a dropkick, which Soli says would have knocked the top of Nikita's head off otherwise. I'm dubious. <laughs> yeah, I don't think Keith Larson is Riccio, so no. <laughs> that's not going to be the case. Nikita and Ivan beat up Larson but Larson gets a roll up on Ivan that Nikita breaks up which brings Oli in to knock Nikita out of the ring Nikita beats up Kernoodle outside and Oli goes to stop him which leads the ref over to try and break that up which gives Ivan time to grab his chain and nail Larson with it then hide the chain for the ref to count the three Um, so this is a good example of how we were talking about the previous show and how the tag match structure was kind of interesting and it varied there's good or good and bad ones and better and worse ones in that show mm-hmm. this is definitely I think the best way you could have done that match because so basically you have 
Ole Anderson, who's a very experienced wrestler at this point, and you have Ivan Koloff, who's a very experienced wrestler at this point. Nikita's only in his first like year of his career, right? I believe the time on that. I think so. I didn't actually <clears throat> take the time to look that one up. It's been it, anyway. It's, it's less than two years for sure. It's, I think he's in his first year. Yeah, ar- around that time. So he's you know he's big and young and strong and can do clotheslines and you bear hug obviously, but he's not going to control a match because he's just done that experience yet. Larson kind of the same way. Mm-hmm. Larson is fairly new. He has that sort of youth and vigor, but not experience. So they wisely structure the match with the two veteran people controlling the match. Younger people come in, do their thing, but don't stay or say the welcome. It's kind of a shame with all this story that they can't get a clean finish, especially given that there's nothing on the line. Because it's worth noting that the the Russian team, which had consisted of Ivan and Nikita Koloff and Don Canoodle, are technically still the NWA's six-man tag team champions. But, you know, they've beaten up and betrayed their third partner and third man. But anybody's not like, you guys got to defend your titles now. It's really not until January that that comes an issue and they just bring in a new guy to be another Russian. Yeah. So you could have made this, there's no title, so why not let Ole and Larson get a win in this situation? I don't quite understand that. Yeah, I can see that. Why well, again, like some of these matches they wish the finish was better and cleaner. The actual match itself was, wasn't bad. Okay. No, the match had good flow. Um, you guys are right in pointing out that there is a definite uh, experience gap between the the seasoned wrestler and the apprentice or whatever term you want to use. Mm-hmm. The whole playing into the patriotism and everything, of course you know that they're going to do something nefarious at the end. Yeah. Uh, to win so it wasn't really um even though i enjoyed the match it was i just knew it was going to happen at the end you know yeah yeah i can see i saw that in the very beginning yeah you get they it's a checkoff's chains they bring the chains out at the beginning and you're you're like i bet those are gonna be there at some point but you actually do i did actually forget during the match that they had those chains and then i oh oh he had those lying in the corner yeah yeah i thought it was a good fast-paced match Albeit, because of the uh, experience gap, it almost feels entirely backwards from the normal tag formula. That's true. That you yeah. normally get the you know the face in peril, and then he gets the hot tag to the other face, and that guy comes in charging and beats down the heels, and then maybe you know it goes any which way from there. But in this case, it was Ivan playing heel in peril. Yeah. For a long time, and then Nikita gets I'm not sure what you call a heel version of a hot tag. But yeah, like you said, Nikita's new to wrestling at this point, so that explains it. Larson and Oli did a pretty good job keeping the, all the different arm work that they did interesting. They yeah. had a lot of different things to do, and Oli in particular had some really vicious-looking uh, strikes and holds for it. I really loved, as I mentioned, the the second escape from the bear hug with the kind of modified chin buster. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that was, was a creative little spot. And Nikita looked pretty green, but he did his part. So yeah. I, I can't say that I felt like he's stumbling around in there or anything. No, yeah. And Ivan actually did a terrific job of selling the arm. Actually, almost too good, because I was actually starting to feel pretty darn sympathetic to him um, <laughs> <laughs> early in the match. Yeah. Yeah, long match, but it kept a good pace for the most part, and even the bear hug actually wasn't too long. I was afraid when that first came on, because I'm not a fan of bear hugs. But, no, uh, sure. No one is. <laughs> yeah. Especially not if you're in them. 
Post-match, the Russians try to continue the beating, but Kernoodle charges in and batters them with his crutch, breaking it over them and sending them scurrying out of the ring. Kernoodle and Oli check on Larson as we go to the announcers. Uh, Soli says that he's glad to see Kernoodle using his philosophy differently these days, and he credits Oli and Larson for that. Back at the ring, Larson, Kernoodle, and Oli all get to their feet to the cheers of the crowd. Uh, Soli and Caudill ask if there's been an official announcement from the ring announcer yet, and neither's sure. I think he actually started to talk just before Canoodle attacked, so he got interrupted there. Yeah, that happens sometimes. They'll yeah. play music and suddenly stop. Yeah. In January, the Russians find a new member for their trio, Crusher Khrushchev. Oh, that's an awesome name. It is, yeah. And it's, it's spelled mm-hmm. with a K in both, in case you're wondering. Oh, of course. This Crusher with a K is... Ed Boom sure. is watching, clearly. Mortal Kombat there. Crusher Khrushchev is, of course, Barry Darso. Future oh, Smash okay. Demolition. Yet, yet another Minnesotan is apparently Russian. Minnesota is the go-to state for Russians. It's really weird. Apparently so. Because with the um, Nikita is the same way, I believe. Hmm. They're basically throughout the next year, they'll either defend their six-man titles, or ultimately they, as I mentioned before, they win. Two of them win the main titles from Manny and Dusty. So you could, they they just sort of stay in the tag title mix for that that run. Soli and Cottle move us on to build up the Steamboat versus Blanchard match, with both wrestlers having to put up $10,000 for it. There's definitely some Blanchard-Steamboat interaction in the past. So I started watching the shows in October to build up for the show. The way they treated it, at least at that point, is that Steamboat had been out of wrestling again. Because, talking about last year, he left after Christmas. Seemingly gone from wrestling forever, but he's back in a few months. I don't know the whole story. I don't know personally. He's back, and the much stuff happens earlier in the year with him and Wild McDaniel and Wes Blanchard. But so then what brings him back to wrestling is Ron Bass and Black Bar J.J. Dillon messing with the gym and attacking his brother. And so sort of weirdly, he's back, and now he's fighting Blanchard again, who I guess he just remembered he was mad at from earlier. And then I mean, they work with it in the last couple of weeks, but it's weird that what brings him back is not the guy he's in fighting. Uh, just to reestablish, the disqualification rule has been waived. Yes. So we And we have a no-run rule. So that means that, unlike a normal title match, if Tully is disqualified or runs away, he loses the title. Yes. They also have a 60-minute time limit, in contrast to the normal television title. Well, I guess, in contrast to the normal television title that we get later, where it's actually a 15-minute time limit, and in contrast to last year, where it was a 60-minute time limit, but you could only win the title for the first 15. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I still don't get that. Yeah, I don't understand that at all, either. Steamboat comes out while faces from the previous match are still leaving, and he claps hands with them on the way. He has to really, really fight his way through the crowd, uh, to get to the ring, and he loses the lay he's wearing about his neck on the way. And his lay. He barely manages to keep his jacket. It's a simple white one with a tree and his name on the back. His entrance music actually was really cool. Uh, it's not an entrance music that I normally hear for Steamboat, but it just sounded uh, almost intimidating, but in a good guy kind of way. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure if that was his normal music, or if they just, you know, I'm not sure how they picked the entrance music for the show. A lot of people get the same one, but not Steamboat. His was, his was special. Mm-hmm. He goes around the ringside, slapping hands with the fans like the best faces do, and shakes hands with the ring announcer as he gets in. 
Blanchard has the same entrance music we've heard a few other times tonight. It starts playing long before he actually enters, but we do get some nice cycling colors from the lights as he does. Blanchard's robe is nice, a black one with silver sparkling designs and his name in red script on the back. It's a good look. I do have a note in the music. I, I don't, I'm not 100 sure in this uh, as the rewatch show again, but I wonder if maybe the people managed by J.J. Dill and all the same music? That might be it, because we hear it, we hear the same piece a lot, but it's normally it matches with Dylan's guys. I think the only time that it might be associated with someone that's not technically is that Slater and his opponent, I think, come out at the same time and right. both have it, but that's that still a Dylan guy that's coming yeah. out before Slater. So. Blanchard offers a hand to start, but Steamboat slaps it away. Blanchard opens up with some strikes to Steamboat's injured ribs, and an angry Steamboat fires back hard and beats him around the ring and even out to the apron before bringing him back in with a big suplex. He keeps up the offense, but Blanchard keeps sneaking in blows to the ribs. Eventually, they start to take their toll as Steamboat struggles to catch his breath. Blanchard circles Steamboat, and Steamboat slowly turns to try to keep the ribs away from Blanchard, while Caudill and Soli explain that the ribs are stopping Steamboat from being able to get a second wind. Blanchard makes the mistake, however, of spitting at Steamboat, and Steamboat gives him a mighty glare. Oh yeah. Blanchard somehow manages to run away in a cocky manner. <laughs> Not sure how, but he did it. Take skill, man. But Steamboat catches him with a massive power slam and solidly takes control, getting several two counts in rapid succession. Steamboat even hits Blanchard's own slingshot suplex for two. The ribs still bother Steamboat, though, and they slow him down enough for Blanchard to sneak an object into his hand. He uses it to take the advantage back, but Steamboat manages to fire back with a big splash and a sunset flip, only for Blanchard to hit him with the object again and sit down for the three. The story of this show so far is early matches are good, but generally unremarkable for one reason or another. And then it kind of gets not very good in the middle. You know, it's debatable which one's worse. It's up to you, obviously. But you have some stuff, some real low points uh, around this point. Obviously, the last match is a little better. But for me, the Steamboat thing really is a nice high mark. Mm-hmm. Because I was really worried going into this that you're having Steamboat entered. So the whole match is going to be him essentially handicapped. So he can't do his big moves, can't do this. It's only with the end, and then it'll backfire. But he did a good job in balance for me of not forgetting that he's hurt, because he's really always good about the psychology in that, but also not slowing down and changing so dramatically that it takes away from the match. Yeah, It's a fine line with that, because you don't want to pretend like you're not hurt, but you also don't want you know a quick, really responsive wrestler to just not you know do their moves anymore because they're selling a leg injury. Yeah. My only negative again is the finish. <laughs> it's the um I've been working record I know. It's the theme of the night. My issue again is an unclean finish. My bigger issue besides using weapon is that he uses the weapon and it doesn't doesn't actually get him the win and then when he's in trouble he uses the weapon a second time and it works. Yeah. The surprise factor of the weapon is gone the second time. You should know it's coming, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. I can see that. Steamboat, yeah, he did a great job selling the injuries. But, you know, he definitely has a surge of both emotion and, and energy 
when he's insulted, when he gets spit on, and he also looks like desperation when he gets, you know, he starts doing his big moves, but right before it, he needs that little motivation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, some good acrobatic uh, movements, and uh, it, it it was actually kind of heartbreaking to see him lose, you know, after all the, his speech wasn't as good, but I still was rooting for him. Yeah. Steamboat's intensely, like, likable yeah. as, a, as a face, isn't he? It's similar to what we'll get with Sting later on, mm-hmm. that if you don't like this man, you have no heart or soul. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Steamboat, kind of, I get that reaction for as well, where it's just like, you get behind him, like, yeah. so easily. Yeah, this was terrific. Steamboat and Blanchard work really, really well together. Steamboat's selling of the ribs, like you guys mentioned, was amazing. He did little subtle things to his performance that were brilliant, where like there's a bit where Blanchard is circling him and Steamboat keeps turning ever so slightly to make sure that the that the injured ribs are out of the way. And just the way he stands and every last movement that he makes in the match, he looks like he's actually hurt. Yeah. This he is behaving in every way exactly like you would expect a person with injured ribs to behave. Yeah. It's absolutely just beautiful selling. Blanchard is great at using the rib storyline as Mm -hmm. well. Every moment that he gets, he is taking a shot at those. Anytime he gets in trouble, he is taking a shot at the ribs to try and get out of trouble. Even when he's woozy from Steamboat battering him at points. <laughs> he will take wild swings, clearly hoping he will find the ribs. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like perfect use of those by the heel, too, which is absolutely amazing. That storyline in this match is wonderfully done. Steamboat's version of Tully's slingshot suplex was really, really great, too. Mm-hmm. Very uh, beautiful. Steamboat's always just great with the moves. Yeah, Tully made me want to see Steamboat batter him and win. And like you said, John, like actually crushed when Steamboat loses this match. It's like you want so badly to see Steamboat win. I was like actually deflated for a few moments when he doesn't. It's, it was a really, really good one for that. I do have two minor complaints on sure. it. One, I kind of wish that the ribs had factored into the ending, ending too. Like, yeah. if you actually had to like, punch him in the ribs with mm, the object yeah, to take him down, maybe. It's just such a focus of the match that it feels like that should factor in more. And then also, Steamboat does a really, really beautiful splash towards the end of the match. But he's doing a beautiful splash with her ribs. And that's the one point in the match where it feels like you shouldn't have done that yeah. if you have an injury, right? Really minor points. Great, oh, sure. great match. Also, I want to take a moment to compliment Soli and Coddle here. They do an exceptional job on commentary of building up the injury angle, of pointing out every little thing that Steamboat is doing to emphasize it, and of um, explaining the effects that it's having on Steamboat's performance, of him being just a little bit slower than normal, just yeah. having a little bit more time to recover, and... Uh, the effects on him not being able to get a second win, not being able to draw breath and all fully, it made it easy to pick up on those subtle details of Steamboat's performance. This is one where I think everybody works together really well to make this as good as it possibly could be, and it it was excellent. Post-match, Soli and Caudill build up the match's ferocity 
and Steamboat's heart for going into the match injured, but they also take a moment to build up Blanchard's, quote, tremendous second effort mm-hmm. Yes, for kicking out of the big moves. It's a really good match. I'd watch it again. I, I don't think any match up to this point. <laughs> no. Many of these matches I will be glad to never see again. <laughs> no, I would look for the character development for um, Assassin number one and <laughs> from out of town. But other than that, no. I think this is the f- first match that I'd, I wouldn't mind seeing the whole thing again, start to finish, no problem. And that's a that's a pretty good compliment. I mean, you know, and definitely tells you the difference between it and the rest of the card. Yeah, so unfortunately for you, John, the streak of guy in the match you really liked leaving going WWF continues. Because Steamboat is gone. Aww. After this one? Yeah. Yep. He's back in 89, I want to say. But yeah, so unfortunately, yeah, he's he's gone to this. I don't I don't know if it's I would assume they knew in advance that's why he doesn't win the title. Um I don't think it's he's mad they didn't win the title and he leaves. I assume it's the other way around. Tully actually has a back and forth later in ninety five with Dusty Rhodes of all people. Hmm. He loses the title, then gains it back, and loses it again. Then Dusty gains it back. Uh, unfortunately there's a whole thing I'll go in more out of later where the injury on Dusty Rhodes so he's then forced to vacate the title. Our next match is Superstar Billy Graham versus Wahoo McDaniel for McDaniel's NWA United States Heavyweight Championship. These actually, these are two of the best wrestling names. That's true. I, I, I do have to say, I still love Wahoo McDaniel. Yeah. That's, that's just a great name. Uh, first, I would note that Mike Graham, who you saw in the four title match, is not related to Super Barbara Graham, in case you're wondering. Okay, I actually was wondering that, yeah. Yeah, no, there's a separate um, Graham family. But yeah, they're not related at all. That's just two guys. Like the previous show, there's two guys named Graham, both in the, on the show with the two young blood, but at least those two are, are actually related. Yeah. Hmm. They announced that Super Billy Graham is coming to the territory. Um, they announced, for, as mentioned, the six man elimination body slam match. Where presumably he'd be the heel because he's teamed up with Zambui Express with Paul Jones, but then he's suddenly a good guy a week later, announced to fight Wahoo Daniel, who's a heel for the title. Wahoo now, by the way, is full bad guy, having temporarily lost the title due to cheating, and then regain they because this this is the day when if you cheat too much they'll strip your title. Yes, sometimes, oh. but not all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's not consistent. Basically, he has a title, he's caught cheating, and they strip him the title, then run a tournament for the title, which they leave him in, because that'll show him, I guess. Anyways, the back, anyways. <laughs> Switzer Billy Graham does one pre-recorded promo. He says some less-than-PC things uh, about Wally oh. McDaniel. Okay. I would note that he mentioned he's the man with the human pythons, which is nice. He also says that um, no man can break his full Nelson hold, whether they're living or alive. (laughs) (laughs) This great promo is aired on the show two weeks before Starcade. Then on the next week's show, Ogdano is told he's fighting Sir Billy Graham, and they play the promo again in full while assuming he's looking at a screen just off camera. And that's really all you get. Superstar Billy Graham is coming back. He cut one promo, and he's going to be here at the show. Okay, then. 
Yeah. And he's a previous U.S. title holder. Oh, okay. That's why he's immediately thrown in the title match. Um, that makes sense anyway. Yeah. Uh, superstar Billy Graham has very odd, funky entrance music and does a lot of strange martial arts chops as he uh, gets in before he flexes a bunch. He's got a sleeveless shirt with his logo on it and a headband with what looks like kanji characters on it. The same entrance music we've heard lots of other times welcomes Wahoo and his great headdress to the ring. You mentioned he's fully heel here, mm-hmm. but a lot of fans actually still shake hands with him as he comes down, and he gets similarly mixed reactions during the introductions. Mm-hmm. So I guess much like me, people still kind of like Wahoo McDaniel, even if he's a bad guy now. Yeah. They're still not clear whether he's singular or plural, though, because some of these Wahoo McDaniels... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe there's two. Maybe one's a bad guy, one's a good guy, and we just can't tell them apart, so they're just like, yeah. By the way, did you, I, I caught while editing last show, you actually did that once, too. Did I? Yeah. <laughs> now, there you go. That's contagious. Yep. And, yes, yeah, Soli tells us that superstar Billy Graham has 23-inch arms, and they're called the Pythons. Awesome. Uh, Hulk Hogan, of course, will use the same description for his arms later, but has to in- increase the inches by one. Yes, he's 24-inch Python. <laughs> Just has to be better. Knuckle lock to start, and Wahoo strikes Graham to get out, but Graham pulls out his hair and slams him down. As they continue, the announcers note that Wahoo is at a disadvantage because Graham is bald and has no hair to grab. Yes. That just cracked me up. It's a good idea. Graham dominates with his strength, but Wahoo takes brief control after putting his thumbs in Graham's eyes, hitting a few chops and punches. Graham comes back and gets the full Nelson on Wahoo, but Wahoo briefly escapes, only for Graham to put it back on. Wahoo slumps down, and Graham tries a pin, but gets two. Graham and Wahoo trade blows, and Graham counters a whip into the ropes with a shoulder block, but as he bounces off the ropes again, Wahoo hits a chop to knock him down and gets the three. Yeah, with my or my notes, uh, slow brawling and posing, abrupt finish, joy. <laughs> yeah, so at this point, Superstar Billy Graham's whole thing is just being really big and buff, which he, to be fair, he is. He's definitely proto Hulk Hogan to a lot, especially at this point, proto Scott Steiner, as you'll see at yes. the end. When he's big Papa Pump, is a lot of that. Mm. I don't know if he can't bump well at this point. I know later, a few years from now, he has issues with hips and stuff mm. in WWF. I don't know if that's still an issue at this point or if that starts later. It's like pressure people use a lot is all sizzle, no steak. That's kind of his thing. Mm-hmm. He looks like he'd be this big, dangerous guy, but then you just chop him once while he's running out the ropes, and he goes down back like a turtle, his arms like up. Which I, I, I'm I still confused by that ending, because I get that that chop is apparently always finisher, although it's not that impactful to me. Yeah. I don't, maybe, I don't know who's to blame for that. Maybe it looks better on other people. But Graham goes down... I guess he's trying to sell the shock of it. He has his arms and legs up, like, fully. So when he's being pinned, his shoulders are definitely not all the way down. <laughs> I don't know if it's just bad posing in his part, which is weird because he's a bodybuilder. I think posing would be the one thing he would have down. Whether it's he doesn't like losing, so he sort of won't commit to it, or, or it's just coincidental, I don't know. But, yeah, it's just kind of a shame with all this build-up just being, like, the second most important match of the show, in theory... Because they constantly mention, depending on who's U.S. champion, they'll go, the United States champion is the number contender by default. Yeah. Because you're the second 
highest champion, so you're the next in line. It makes sense. Yeah, no, it absolutely does. Except it alternates a lot depending who has the title, which is kind of a shame. It should be a rule all the, all the time. So with that in mind, with these two big names of lineage and wrestling, it's kind of a shame that the match isn't that good. Yeah. It didn't get a lot out of it, fortunately. I was surprised to see the chop. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the the Tommy chop, or whatever you want to call it, uh, makes quick work at the end, and it just seemed everything up in the match was interesting. I, I was surprised it was done. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's abruptly just done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really, really, really short. Even as short as it was for me, it had nothing. Yeah. Uh, Graham didn't have anything but basic strikes and a decent full Nelson. Uh, same for Wahoo here, minus the full Nelson. Mm-hmm. Even the alignments seem really weird. The reactions suggest Graham's the face and Wahoo's kind of between face and heel. But Graham is clearly the first one to cheat by hair pulling no less, which we saw in an earlier match tonight as the main focus of a heel's bad activity. <laughs> True. Know. Yeah. So this was really dull, and I was quite glad when it was over, despite the extremely unceremonious ending. Wahoo's chop, like you said, did not look like it should take a guy as big as Graham down. No. Uh, but that's what we got. I I, I want to say something good about this, actually, because I liked Wahoo at Starcade 83. You know, he, yeah. I kind of I got a good feeling for him, but I've got nothing to say about this match that's any good. Why was this match second to last on the card? Yeah. Like, did we need a buffer between Steamboat's match and Flair's match to make sure that you didn't, like, that you were down a little bit after the Steamboat match so that the Flair match didn't have to compete or something? I don't know. It's like, it doesn't make any sense to me that this match is this high on the card Mm -hmm. with as little as it has to offer. Well, so yeah, in modern wrestling, there's a term, especially when you have like WV shows that run currently, where they have two big champions. They will generally have, by the end, they'll have one championship match, and then they'll have something happen after that, before the main event match, which is usually a title match, or whatever is deemed more important. Mm-hmm. That spot, unfortunately, is often called the death spot. Yeah. Because the crowd gets super hyped, and then de- well, they're either either deflated because the face loses or there's emotions are spent because you know a face just won is a big celebratory moment and so you need that match to let them recover so they're back up for the next one but whatever that match in that spot is is kind of screwed unless they're really really good even then sometimes they're still screwed because the crowd has nothing to give them they need they need them to recuperate and that's you're you're stuck being there it's just you don't normally act like the crowd's not going to care. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> and, yeah. This, and this match appears to be like, well, we know this is the crowd's not going to react, you know, as strongly to anything after that uh, that steamboat match. So we're going to show uh, send them out, send out something that they shouldn't react to anyway. Like this match deserves nothing. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be one of those like Al was saying? Wouldn't this be a, the the death spot or the? Um be like where you try something gimmicky yeah this is where the t- tuxedo thing goes or, there you go um, yeah exactly 
as not as not that I liked the tuxedo match, no. but, that, but no, this would no, be in I a mean, better. But that would be a much better thing to put here. That's a very good point. I'll give you that, and that's good. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, they could also just bring out uh, Dusty Rhodes and just have him talk for yeah. a little bit <laughs> for fun. Post match, Graham complains to the ref that Wahoo was grabbing his pants on the on the pin, but the replay shows that Wahoo definitely did not do that. And Soli and Cottle call it absolutely uncontested. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, who was the bad guy here? Very good question. <laughs> yeah. So the grand experiment of Wad McDaniel as the evil mega heel ends in March when he loses the U.S. title. The other thing of note is, so I watched the next two shows following this. So on the follow-up show, Paul Jones is celebratory for having beaten Jimmy Valiant in the way he did. And he brags about having a new member of his stable. He says that um, this person he's bringing is a master of all the martial arts. And you won't, and you won't believe the body in this guy. This is the way he says it. And but I'll tell you next week who my new guy is. So I'm like, okay, well, I got to watch the next show. Just, I don't think I was to confirm what I'm pretty sure the answer to this is. And the answer is yes. Superstar Billy Graham is now, apparently, at this point, I'm being managed by Paul Jones. Okay. Hmm. So he does kind of become a heel. Yes. Okay, so that kind of makes some sense anyway. The announcers note that they have a 10-minute intermission, and they show the replay of Starcade 83's ending again. Caudle says that Starcade 84 is topping 83, and they throw it to Tony Schiavone. Bob Caudle, I'm sorry. I very much disagree. <laughs> Numerically, it is. <laughs> Numerically, it is, yes. Yeah. Tony is backstage with the three men acting as judges for tonight's main event. Duke Kiyomuka looks pretty serious, Smokin' Joe Frazier looks serious, and Kyle Petty could not smile any bigger if he tried. Tony tells us that the three will be judges, but that Frazier will also be the ref in the ring. If the match goes 60 minutes, the three will decide who wins. Tony asks for their thoughts. Duke says that they have two great wrestlers, and they'll judge watching their abilities. Whoever wins it, wins it. Joe Frazier says everyone knows it's a championship fight, and he's going to make sure that the rules are kept. If he sees something wrong, or someone gets hurt, he'll call it off. He doesn't want anything to go wrong. It's just like boxing, no different. Petty says that in NASCAR you have to be aggressive, and he's looking to see which wrestler is more aggressive. If it comes to their choice, he might have to mail his vote in if the wrestlers are getting rough. These three guys actually came off as really, really nice guys. Sure. Mm-hmm. particularly Kyle Petty, who just seemed absolutely thrilled to be there. Yeah. He had a huge grin plastered on his face the whole time and, like, could not be happier. Not the best promos. I think no. we could all agree on that, right? I like Joe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, they did get across what they wanted, what they needed to get across, I think, for the most part. It did add to a sense of importance for the main event that we're setting up this judging situation for it is different to other matches, and that helps it feel unique and mm-hmm. and more and larger. I will say one thing about this: uh, an issue with the format of the show. As weird as it sounds, I understand doing the judge promo near the end, mm-hmm. but honestly, I would have reversed the order of airing the Dusty promo and the judges promo. Yeah. Because, so Dusty comes out, as we talked about, says, make sure, Bill Frazier, you don't stop this match, no matter what happens, before Joe Frazier said anything about stopping the match on this show. True, true. And then Joe Frazier mm-hmm. comes out and says, I'm going to stop this match if I have to. 
That's a good point. Yeah. Maybe maybe the whole show is not aired chronologically correct. Like they have the <laughs> anthems in the middle. That's true. <laughs> like, that yeah. could be the beginning of the show. Yeah. Soli and Caudle build up the importance of the judges if the match goes to 60 minutes and the level of responsibility they face in not just deciding who gets the title, but $1 million as well. So our final match is Dusty Rhodes versus Ric Flair for Flair's NWA World Heavyweight Championship with special referee Joe Frazier and judges Duke Yamuka, Joe Frazier, and Kyle Petty. So this has basically been building up since the previous show, if anyone watched right. the Hopefully watch the previous episode. <laughs> wink, wink. But yeah, Dusty says in that show he's going to challenge the winner, and he hopes it's Flair, but he also at that point thinks it's going to be race, and obviously it isn't. Yeah. They definitely have some physical interaction throughout the year, but it's mostly just talking about how I'm going to take Flair down to the show. Come October, which is where I start watching the shows... By that point, Flair is fully a heel. He's the touring champion everyone loves to hate. He comes to your territory, you hope your local guy will beat him, and of course they don't. And they make a big deal once they announce Starkid officially. Uh, the million dollar challenge things add to it. They have this video package where you like, go to the bank and load a pallet of money up and like, walk it out and like walk around with it. It's, it's all very cheesy and kind of fun. They decide they're having this match in advance and they decide to add the $1 million challenge thing. The Joe Frazier is added fairly late. They talk about him a little bit to it. Um, they don't really mention their judges that much. I think there's one mentioned them briefly on the previous show, but their Frazier thing is definitely brought up. But yeah, no, I don't recall anything on the previous shows about Joe Frazier mentioning he might stop the fight early or the match early if he has to. So I don't know why Dusty is sort of saying that unprovoked. Yeah. Unless I missed something. Maybe he was responding to Dusty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So but I mean, what, what inspires Dusty in the first place? Is that, yeah, it's taking the X situation. He's not experienced in roughing a wrestling match, so it's mm-hmm. kind of a don't do anything weird or... Yeah. We go to the ring, and a bit of pyro goes off. Coddle says, and there's the big boom that introduces someone. <laughs> as we actually can't see yet because the lights are still off. <laughs> Soli asks us to watch the proceedings as they occur, which I suspect was his not-quite-subtle way of trying to get someone to turn on the dang lights. <laughs> <laughs> really gentle, easy-listening kind of music starts up, <laughs> and that summons Dusty Rhodes to the ring in a really nice purple and silver robe. I guess the music is the dream thing, but... It just sounds so quiet and peaceful that it doesn't actually sound right for wrestling, especially for Dusty Rhodes. Yeah. The crowd, however, cheers like mad for him. Flair, of course, still has also Sprock Zarathustra. He gets a more mixed reaction, but people are still pretty happy to see him overall. A bit too happy as they pull at his robe as he walks through the crowd, and he has to somewhat awkwardly clamber over the barricade with it falling partly open. Dusty has the same issue. They don't have a clear pathway for some yeah. reason. And they call through the crowd and then step over a thing. Yeah. Dusty has a rope like half off so he can step over the barricade. Mm-hmm. I feel for the guy. Flair's robe's pretty ornate anyway. It's uh, pink and silver with some really, really big frills on it that mm-hmm. just looks uh, definitely in the arrogant Flair look now. Oh, yeah. 
the judges are also announced. The crowd loves Kyle Petty. I guess the the love is returned because he's clearly happy too. Yeah. They seem less enthusiastic about smoking Joe Frazier and much less about Duke Kiyomuka. The announcer oddly says Petty and Kiyomuka's names twice. I did notice that. That was really strange. Dusty shows himself the more powerful of the two to start, but Flair is quick to recover and plays looser with the rules, sneaking in hits when they get against the ropes. Flair's strikes mostly annoy Dusty to start, and he lands hard blows of his own, but eventually Flair is able to land harder strikes to Dusty's head that slow him down. He gets cocky and pauses for a woo on a knee drop, though, and Dusty dodges and slaps on the figure four. Flair fights and risks being pinned a few times while he howls in pain. He manages to get to the ropes eventually, but the hold has hurt his leg, and he's slow to get going. Dusty dominates pretty solidly, but Flair tries variously to wrestle and strike his way to a comeback. Dusty counters or absorbs his best and keeps knocking him down. We get Flair's famous flop, followed by his flip over the turnbuckle, which lands him outside. Fraser tries to get between the two, but Dusty suplexes Flair back in anyway for a two-count. They keep trading chops, and Flair goes up top but gets slammed off. His match-winning move from last time has failed him already. (laughs) It will continue to do so for virtually every match for the rest of his career. Yes. (laughs) Outside again, Flair slams Dusty into the ring post to get him bleeding badly from just above the eye. Dusty gets in, and the two continue to try to fight, with Flair continually hammering away at Dusty's wound. Frazier keeps getting between them, though, and goes to consult with Duke, then comes back in to push them apart again. The crowd boos mightily at this interruption, and Frazier calls for the bell. Frazier lifts Flair's arm, awarding the match to Flair. The crowd actually gives a pretty big cheer when he goes over and lifts Flair's arm, but that turns to some boos as well as they, I think, realize mm-hmm. what's just happened. I feel really repetitive, but it's actually a pretty good match, and then they do something done with the ending, and it messes the whole thing up. Yeah. Obviously, we didn't get as real long real time build up for this match as you got at the time you got a year of build up but true we still you know we have the tease of a dusty Rhodes match and Ric Flair match rather and then we finally get it it seemed like it's starting to build up something and then it abruptly stopped because a boxer says the cut's too bad and to be fair it was a bad cut oh yeah it's not like he kind of did it for no reason it's not like he's really being a heel but it's with all that they constantly build up, has so much is on the line. He has all these stakes, and then it's just, oh, we got to happen now. Yeah. Mm. You know, pay to see the show next year. Yeah, I I didn't notice the foreshadowing until we started talking about it. Like, you know, about both Dusty and Joe Frazier talking about, you know, calling the match. Mm-hmm. But it's something about watching a match where you know the ref could take it, you know, actually physically take out both, <laughs> True. both yeah. contestants no, with no problem whatsoever. He was more um, energetic uh, than both of them at some points when he's moving around. Mm. Like Some of the refs you know, go out of their way to get out of the action, but Joe's bouncing in, checking on things, like you know, in, and then bounces back out and is moving along with them throughout the whole thing. So it's fun watching him, too. And, you know, he's not winded or anything. Just kind of speaks to his athleticism as a, as a boxer but i don't know why i'm going on about him oh because he was a very important part of the match yeah yeah right it's understandable 
but no, I enjoyed that quite a bit. And, uh, they, they did it twice where he checks his, checks his eye and everything. And I'm like, they're not going to do this. They're not, no, I, no, they're not going to do it, but they do. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if it's just one of those things where they're like, well, we re- we have a lot of people who like flair and dusty. So we need to get this, uh, make this be a technicality. Mm-hmm in order to preserve both fan bases. Yeah. It's it's definitely like we've still got more story to tell here. So we want to we don't want to have something that feels like a definitive ending here. We want to tell more with this. We want to do more with this going on going forward. So it accomplishes that. We can debate I think whether it's the best way to accomplish that, but it is that's their goal. Yeah. And they do accomplish that goal. I would make Dusty wear an eye patch for the next two weeks. There you go. <laughs> just to sell this. I would like to hear Dusty Rose try and do a pirate accent. <laughs> mm-hmm. okay. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah. Like you said, I liked this one for the most part. It's hard fought. It definitely gets this feeling of one's power, one's tactics. Yeah. Dusty has the obvious weight advantage. Um, but Flair's this really wily champion that keeps trying new things. The story of the match is very strong. Flair does a really good job of switching things up. Uh, whenever something's not working against Dusty, he moves to something else. The one exception being he probably tries a few too many punches to Dusty's belly. That yeah, that should probably be obvious. That's not going to work in the first place. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Dusty just keeps making steady progress and slowly wearing Flair down with his strength. So it's a good, solid match story, I think. It was really cool to see a lot of Flair's famous spots already present here. Yeah. That, you know, last year we had Flair as a, a good performer in the ring, but, you know, like, not recognizable really as Ric Flair in the ring fully. Mm. Now he is fully recognizable as Ric Flair. He has, you know, the flop. He has the flip over the turnbuckle. He has the, I go up to the top rope, you grab me, and I go, no! <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. Doesn't quite yell that as loud as he'll get yet, but he's getting there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so his, his in-ring act feels almost entirely formed now, only one year on from when he was, like, not really recognizable as fully Ric Flair in the ring. <laughs> Dusty is surprisingly nimble for such a big dude. I've only seen late Dusty Rhodes matches, yeah. really, so I was not expecting that guy to be able to move as fast and as oh yeah no sure. as nimble as he did. Um, so he was he was quite good in the match. He was strong when he needed to be, vulnerable when he needed to be. He's powerful, but it feels like he can be stopped. Mm-hmm. So so many elbows. <laughs> he likes them, yeah. The and and I did catch they did definitely say bionic elbow at one point this year, yes. so he's definitely claimed that from Valentine. <laughs> the ending, the ending is well performed, mm. but it's a terrible idea. Yeah, it's like looking at it. I can compliment every one of them involved in it for their performance during it. Dusty, in particular, is doing an exceptional job of selling the injury. He gets the cut over his eye. He really expertly sells not just the disorientation and then the blood loss and everything, but like not being able to see because of the blood and and everything. Flair gets amazingly vicious. Yes. He starts going for that cut. Like, I have finally found a weakness. I can take this guy down. 
I also liked the match kind of had this subplot in it of him starting out trying to just do reasonably straight competition, not doing an extreme amount of uh, cheating. He does a, a few little bending of the rules here and there, but it's not extreme. Late in the match, he starts getting really willing to injure Dusty. Yes. And you can see this transition in Flair's character from arrogant to actually bad guy as the match goes on, mm-hmm. I think. It's kind of a cool uh, storyline there. But, yeah, the actual ending, you know, just stopping the match and just awarding it to Flair based on the blood loss and him being blinded in the eye and everything just feels so weak. It's this great match, honestly, a, a really, really good match that feels epic. And then it just stops without an ending, and it's it's such a letdown. Yeah. Wouldn't it have been better if they had, like, paused for a second and wrapped Dusty's eye, like, yeah. you know, around the head kind of thing? It's like... And then, and then Flair could dance around him and punch him in the side or something, and then eventually have that injury targeted again, you know, and then they call the match. Yeah, you could, like try and keep it going or you know have dusty lose but because of flair expertly taking advantage of this unfortunate injury so dusty still then would come back with this very legitimate this was an accident that you took advantage of it's not you beating me fully you know he can still come back he doesn't hasn't lost anything it just feels like they want to try and find a way to end the match without either of them taking a pinfall. And it's, this is not a match that should end without somebody taking a pinfall. You know, like yeah. you said, Al, it's a year long build to this thing. Yeah. You know, I can only imagine how disappointing it must have felt for someone that sat through the entire year of build and was getting so excited to see this epic match. And then you get a good match, but so, so damaged. Yeah. Well, they make a point of saying, you know, we have judges in case the match goes an hour long. Uh, reading up on the match goes about 12 minutes long. Yeah, it's not it's not long at all. So it's one-fifth of the possible time it can go. It's... So obviously we can't put ourselves in the shoes of someone who watched this happen in real time, 1984, you know, waiting for this match. But me personally, I felt shortchanged by it. Mm-hmm. You know, first off, you probably shouldn't say that if the match goes over 60 minutes and any anything that i've seen so far <laughs> True. Yeah. like if they said if they said 30 or something like that that would make more sense but part of me hopes that you know that their intent was to have it go uh, you know maybe twice as long or something like that but the injury might have been legitimate they're supposed to play it up and maybe they were supposed to cut and target the eye but Maybe it was some for a medical reason that they actually did cut it short. And um, while I felt robbed, um, you'll notice, um, you know, and we're speaking a little head, but I noticed when they were doing, you know, the, the interviews and the follow-ups and everything at, later on in the, in the show, you know, that they're in the background, they're cutting to the ring, and it is cleared out, like, quick. Yeah, yeah. That they're not staying and, you know, people aren't talking about the matches and, and doing stuff, which is my experience when I, when I went to live shows. You know, you'd kind of hang out for a little bit, but it was it was dead. There's like five people. Yeah, true. Like maybe 10 minutes later. So I, I think a lot of others, uh, I'm speculating, probably felt shortchanged as well. Yeah, I can definitely see that. It Like, I think that's the best term for it is it, it's a, it, you're shortchanged. You feel like you were promised something and it didn't deliver. 
you know, like, like I said, I can say this was actually a pretty good match, but it's like, I can, I can say that and I can reason myself into thinking this was a good match. But anytime I actually think of the match, my thought is, man, that was disappointing. Yeah. The way he plays that is a little weird too, because so he looks at the cut and then let's mention you like it's not, not, he's like, okay, maybe it's bad, but it's not so yeah. bad. Then he looks at it again, goes and talks to Kiyomoka. Yeah. And then it's not clear what he said to him. Did he try to talk him out of it? And then he's like, you could have said, you know, he tried to tell me he's match going, but I decided no. Put all myself. Or he could have said the opposite. He could have said he agreed that I should do it. Sort of, yeah. Sort of, but there's no follow-up on that. Well, as a judge, he could have, like, you know, while they're pausing the match, he could have looked at it too, you know? I mean, if they were trying to be all official about it and say, look, okay, two out of three judges think we should stop this. Maybe it is a legitimate way of ending the match here rather than just saying, yeah, do whatever you want. Yeah. yeah I just wish they had explained what's supposed to have happened between the two of them. Post-match, Dusty flips out and goes after Frazier, but several of the face wrestlers from earlier in the night come out and hold Dusty back as Flair goes out and gets his check from Jim Crockett. Manny Fernandez is there and ties a towel about Dusty's face to cover the eye, and then they escort Dusty from the ring. Soli and Caudle say that they understand Fraser's actions, and that even if it was for a million dollars, that eye is worth more than a million dollars. They say that Fraser was probably influenced by his boxing experience to think that the blood was more of a severe issue than it was for a wrestling match. Well, that's the last match on the show, but as with last year, we do have a little bit more to go with some further interviews. First up, we get backstage with Tony and Ric Flair. Okay, Gordon Soley, we are here in the dressing room of the, once again, world heavyweight champion, Nature Boy, Ric Flair, and that was quite a match. As a matter of fact, one of the most unusual matches that I've ever seen, but you are one million dollars richer at this moment. It's right here, a million dollars. It is unfortunate the way it happened, but I told you, I'm talking to you, Dusty Rhodes, I'm talking to fans out there, that I got in that ring to go 120%. And don't think he wasn't in there going 120%. It's unfortunate he suffered the cut. Whether Joe, Joe Fraser should have stopped the match or not is not my business. All I went in that ring to do was make sure I walked out with this and with this. I've got him right here, both Tony. I'm thankful for this evening, and I'm thankful to be the world champion. I'll be back here next year. Count on it. Thanks. I thought this was a great little interview. Yeah. Flair feels like he's midway between the face and heel here. He's not entirely satisfied with the match. Yeah. But he's willing to push aside any doubts because he got to keep the title and because he gets to take the money. So he's trying to sell himself as a fighting champion, but he's also totally willing to just take the win. Mm -hmm. It's pretty cool to watch his development here. And again, his interviews have improved so much from last year. I'm glad he gave the nod to Dusty. He didn't have to say, you know, that he gave 120% too. And he does play it off as like, you know, if it was Steamboat's like, just who's complaining about a boot in the back? And now he's gouged at the eye. But he moves it forward. Yeah, I think Flair's always pretty good about that. Is he's always, I think he always understands that if you build up the other person, then if you beat them, it means something. Yeah, no, it's covered pretty well. It's it's a, definitely good to see the evolution of his character, Chrissy Rigos. Yeah. 
Soli praises Tony for racing around getting interviews, then segues into praising all the cameramen. He says he's not sure whether he wants to hear from Dusty, because Dusty's bound to be angry, and Cottle agrees that he has to be disappointed, but maybe he'll feel better after he finds out how severe the cut was. I guess justifying Frazier's decision yeah, yeah, is the yeah. idea there. Meanwhile, a fan hangs out in the background and peers through the window, bobbing around and trying to get a look at it, something beyond the announcers. I think maybe he saw himself on their monitors or something like that. Yeah, so they really quickly cut to a shot of the ring, as Soli explains that Dusty has such a memory, he tells elephants what they forgot. (laughs) I love Soliisms. I'm coming to love this guy. They go back to Tony with Dusty Rhodes. And Manny Fernandez is standing by. Thank you very much, Gordon Soley. This is an interview that I really do not look forward in doing. You see Dusty Rhodes right here with his uh, world tag team partner, uh, the Raging Bull, Manny Fernandez. There it went, $1 million in the world's heavyweight title right out the window. I have never, ever in the history of my profession had a match stop by any means. This is wrestling, Joe Frazier. This ain't boxing. These are men. These are one-on-one. We talking about a million dollars, Jack. We talking about the best we have to offer. Stitches in my head. Don't be the damn to me, Joe Frazier. You better look around the country. You better be in the fighting shape of your life. Because somewhere, someplace, I'm going to get you, Joe Frazier and Ric Flair. If you call this a victory, you need to go home and kiss your mama. This ain't no victory. This ain't over. Leave you with this. Spend your money well. Don't throw it away. Because the American dream lives and will continue to live. Get out. Well, fans, that's it from the American dream, Dusty Rhodes. Obviously a very upset man right now, but as he said, I'm sure he will be back. Yeah great emotional interview from dusty he is not his usual cheerful self here Mm -hmm. he is absolutely bellowing in rage really selling his frustration at the decision and what it took from him he definitely got across this is not over and it honestly does help the ending of the match a bit to have two really good strong reactions from the wrestlers involved the match was good the ending brings it way down their reactions afterwards start start kind of digging themselves out of that hole to me a little bit. It's yeah, it's not fair. enough to get it all the way back up. No. But, you know, that performance from, from Flair was really strong, and the performance from Dusty is amazing here. So I will give them credit for taking lemons and making lemonade, I guess. Yeah. Like I said, it was definitely interesting to see the angry side of him, especially because he made a point of being so calm and mm-hmm. ready for everything and then when it goes wrong you see the opposite reaction which is nice yeah it's a huge contrast from earlier yes. in the night he's exactly. easy going and then flips this switch and wow uh, i think it's a it's not really a performance <laughs> it's 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 genuine uh um frustration it's not um something that even if he had, they had, let's assume that they had planned that outcome, mm-hmm. you know, he, he definitely still feels defeated because he wasn't able, there's still X amount of minutes left in that, that match up to 60. I'm told. Yes. 
that you know he doesn't get to get the uh, spotlight or the ability to improve mm-hmm. his career, let alone get the prize. Does he actually get Joe Frazier is what I want to know. Not that I'm aware of. Okay, yeah. It feels like this is a case where he's allowing himself to feel the frustration that, that, that he would have were this a legitimate fight that went that way. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's not the absolute genuine emotion that Ric Flair showed last year after winning the title, but it's about as close as you're going to get to that. Yeah, I have never seen Dusty Rhodes like this. Yeah. I've seen some of his other intense promos, <laughs> his uh, Hard Times promo that's, yeah, yeah. that's really famous, but those are more inspirational mm-hmm. or or they're a different mood. This is darkly angry Dusty, and I, it's a really different thing and really, really interesting. So if nothing else, the odd ending of that match has at least given us that. I will note too that Dusty is the official booker of the entire show, which is which, which honestly to me is more of a credit to him because mm-hmm. it's 100% in his control how this goes, and he manages to sound like he's completely it was taken out of his hand. Yeah. And he has no control over it. It's it's a terrific, terrific. It's a good performance, performance which yeah. is really good. Soli and Cottle wrap us up saying that Starcade was everything that they wanted, but they wouldn't want to be Ric Flair or Joe Frazier right now. Personally, I'd kind of like to be Ric Flair right then, because angry Dusty or no angry Dusty, he just won a million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> right. They cut to a video package covering the various matches for the night. Pretty well put together. One funny thing. It features the build-up to the finishes of all of the matches, except the Ole and Larson versus the Russians match and the Steamboat versus Blanchard match. Yeah, I noticed that. In the Russians match, we get Kernoodle beating them up. And Steamboat shows his power slam from midway through. If you were just judging from this video package, you would assume the faces won both of those matches. Yeah. We also don't get video from the final match, just a shot of Flair with his hand raised. Guess we didn't want to stall for even more time like <laughs> last year. <laughs> yeah. We aren't quite done, though. We go back to Tony one more time with Joe Frazier. Tony says that it must have been a bad cut for Frazier to stop the fight. Frazier says, people are talking about the Bucks, but the Bucks have nothing to do with it. Dusty was in trouble. Frazier tried to warn them to break, but they kept going. How could Dusty continue with it bleeding over his eye? Tony asks if Frazier talked to the other judges. Frazier says he spoke with them before he went in the ring. Dusty was looking for Flair and couldn't even find him, so Frazier had to stop the fight. Tony says that Frazier's seen a lot of cuts and asks again how bad the cut was. Frazier says it was very bad, bleeding over his eye, and he had to stop it. This was pretty awkward. Mm. Frazier, I would imagine, is not too terribly experienced in doing wrestling promos, this being his first wrestling show ever that that I'm aware of. But he's not really getting across his thoughts too well over the course of this. And they kind of say what they need to say in the first question, but continue the interview. Yeah. And Frazier just kind of keeps repeating himself. It's not really long, but it just doesn't feel that necessary. We already got virtually the same comments from Caudill and Soli. And so I think we probably could have just ended on the video package from my, from my. Yeah. Maybe this was their attempt at a little bit of triage. Yeah. Um, for a viewing audience. Blame Joe Frazier. 
Well, no. I mean, like he's he's protecting Dusty at yeah. the end of the day. It may may not necessarily tie up the "I'll get you, Joel Frazier" or anything, but at least um, you can see that he had his Dusty's best interest. Yeah, I mean, it is helpful, I guess, to get the philosophy from Frazier himself, but. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of an awkward ending to the show. It's just like, hey, we've got one more interview. Okay, we're done. Yeah, right. (laughs) You know. Yeah, I mean, you could have... I understand doing it, maybe play it on the show, like the next next show, because it's really placed following a calm but definitely serious promo by Flair and a super intense, super serious, dusty one. To have me, this third guy going, trying to explain things awkwardly, it doesn't follow the two very well. That's what I'd say. Yeah, I agree. That would have been a better delivery, but you know, like the saying goes, "You want to go to bed angry." <laughs> I, 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 at least there's a chance to soften the blow. A no, little bit. yeah, I, mean, I, I understand. I that, can I see that. Yeah. Tony signs off, and Starcade '84 comes to a close. So. What do you guys think about the overall show, Starcade '84, the Million Dollar Challenge? Uh, yeah, it's it definitely is ups and downs, as of a weird middle period where it's not super great, but even consistently throughout the show, even when it's good but not great or serviceable but not bad, the finishes are almost always a question. Mm-hmm. Whether it's why did you only count one guy's pin and completely ignore the other guy who's actually taking the move from the first match or the abruptness of a couple of the finishes, whether it's the U.S. title match later in the show or the meeting Mr. Ito, and then just constantly having like the false finishes like that throughout the show kind of hurts it. Because mm-hmm. it makes you feel like you're not getting resolution of any kind on this show. Yeah. In fact, the only time... I'm trying to think. The only times you really get clear resolution is maybe, weirdly enough, in with Bob McDaniel, Daniel, singular, caught myself, and where he gets a straight victory that's clearly uncontested. And that's weird that he gets that one. Yeah, that's odd. Because it's not any time where the faces... I'm not, I'm not hunting clear on which one of the two people in the first match is supposed to be the face, or maybe they both I are. I think they kind of both are in that one, okay. honestly. Adidas has a clear win when that's he does true, their yeah. spin. Yeah, yeah. But that match is so forgettable that, you know, we just demonstrated this. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Right? Yeah, I can definitely see what you're saying there. That's Yeah, it's it's just getting back to what I said before, before being shortchanged by it. They want you to pay to watch the show. They're, argue, they're selling as a big event. It's a big blow-off to all these stories. And they give you non-finishes, like with the main event, or they give you finishes to make you pay to see it again. Mm-hmm. They want you to, you know, you don't get to, but they want you to pay to see Tully and Steamboat fight again. You know, you want to see Anderson fight the Russians again. You want to see this or that. Yeah. They don't get all of those, but they, it feels like they're trying to squeeze more money out of you, which any show is, to be fair. But there's, you can give people good finishes. Like, you can have a face win a major world title, like the rest of me at 30 with Dan O'Brien. And you'll want the next show to see how he follows it up. Yeah. So you can give good, happy finishes that still make people watch the next show. 
This is not just not an example of that, unfortunately. Yeah. John, thoughts? Well, let me just start by saying I'm 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 gonna try not to go uh, to sleep angry. Um, <laughs> no, I I like that. It, at least it seemed like they were making an effort to put variety in there, whether it played mm-hmm. out that way or okay. not. Is another thing. Like they they did try to pair you know the brass knuckles with like the Roddy Piper thing, but you you can't. You know, yeah, you just can't do that. You know they did work on a few storylines and and just had uh, some I don't want to say throwaway matches but they had some fodder out there that kind of could keep things light rather than you just taking this emotional uh, roller coaster with the other storylines but of course with all the either abrupt or non-ideal endings I I could see how someone might be a little bit miffed at at Going out to the event. Mm-hmm. It's not as positive a reaction as you would get last year. I remember last year you saying the people there probably thought this was pretty amazing. And mm-hmm. yeah, this year you're feeling more like... They're clearing out. I'm sure it was su- that successful from the at least a monetary standpoint where, you know, everyone paid for... Uh, is they still doing closed it's circuit, circuit right now? The, yeah, or? yeah. So, yeah, they have already earned their, their money there. You know, they have uh, a couple storylines they may get to salvage, you know, or at least a reignited rivalry because of, you know, we're not argue over who stabbed who or who put a boot in the back yeah. or gouged their eye. I mean, they can, they can still play off of that. So there's some ways to salvage that. But, no, I I would be kind of... I wouldn't. I would hesitate buying another Starcade ticket <laughs> next year. Fortunately, you don't have any choice. No. <laughs> well, you know what I mean that way. Like if I if I if I was in attendance, I totally agree. If I had purchased Starcade '84, I would be giving serious reconsiderations on Starcade '85 because this is not a horrible show. But it's a disappointing show. I think you guys hit the nail on the on the head there. From a technical standpoint, it feels like it's better put together than last year. Yeah. Some weird shaking of the camera aside <laughs> that we haven't really mentioned. I think that may be more like the video transfer to the network or whatever version they've got. Then I, I don't think that was there for the actual show, likely. But it, it feels pretty well put together from a technical standpoint it keeps moving at a good pace which i really did appreciate mm. um there's not really any points where the show slows down where last year we had some pretty big stalls <laughs> here and there this year it keeps moving but at the same time the show's missing something this mm. year and i think it's a sense of importance that 83 has this really big sense of this epic event this this you know, maybe once in a lifetime kind of show and 84 doesn't get there. Yeah. I'm loath to admit it, but I think it's all those interviews that 83 had. They messed with the show's pacing, but they also really kept reiterating how historic the night was, how important the title match was, how important the tag title match was and how much the wrestlers were rooting for other wrestlers or were interested in each other's matches it all just felt really big. Yeah, I see that. 84 doesn't feel big. No. 
Dusty and Flair build up their match. They do a good job with it. But the other wrestlers don't seem to care about it um, really that much. Nobody's really talking about each other's matches. Nobody's talking about each other's stories. It's true. Matches just kind of happen. So I guess it's a kind of a case of be careful what you wish for. huh? Yeah, yeah. I said, oh, yeah, let's let's take out some of these interviews. Let's have a snappier show. And and we got it. <laughs> I'm not really happy with what I got. Like you guys were saying, 84 has some pretty good matches here and there. And honestly, despite the complaining I'm doing right now, it's not a hard watch. No. There's just so many matches on this show. And some don't have any time to develop. And some seem like they really could have easily been left off. Even the title matches. Seven of the 11 matches are for some title or another. But it's hard to say all those titles really mean anything or needed to be defended on a national supercard. <laughs> yeah. The, the only way it could be worse is if they, they gave the loser a second belt that's exactly yeah. the same. <laughs> <laughs> if they had like a reunification match. <laughs> to, to you know, I liked the Florida heavyweight champion match, but do people in North Carolina care about who is the Florida heavyweight champion? Mm-hmm. It's We have all these title matches, but we have two tag matches on the show, and neither of them is for the tag titles, because the tag champs, Fernandez and Rhodes, are both in other matches. So yeah. it just feels like a bloated show. There's a lot of skippable stuff that doesn't feel important enough to mate it on the card. Yeah. And like you said, Al and, and John, it's there's so many disappointing endings or controversial moments or or, or just problematic moments on the show where it's like this doesn't go like you feel like it should, or this storyline isn't resolved in a good manner. It ends up a show that doesn't come close to fulfilling its potential. Except for the guy that got the $200 sombrero. Yes. He went home happy. Or she. she. Or she. Possibly she as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That person went home happy. The rest of the crowd, I I don't know. We should look through that footage and see if there's a person in the sombrero waiting. That would be funny if you see if there's dirt when they're uh, walking out. If they're uh, if you can spot the person with the sombrero, yeah, that would be nice. That mm-hmm. would be great. Whoever got Ricky Steamboat's lay too probably oh, was yeah. fairly fairly happy. Um, Maybe a crutch. crutch piece. <laughs> yeah, that thing exploded. So there's probably somebody in the crowd that got a got a piece of that. Hopefully not to the face. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I am more interested in. I will probably watch the steamboat. Thank mm-hmm. you, just for the the acting and, and non acting, and uh, interested in JJ Dillon. Yeah, he. There were some good characters that we discovered yeah, yeah. tonight. I think it's, it's not a terrible show, and it's not worthless for sure. Yeah. All right, so let's do match of the night and MVP choices, Al. So, match of the night for me is pretty easy. I'm sure you can know what it's going to be. It's the Steamboat Toy Blanchard match. Yeah. Pretty much every match except for maybe one of them, I had an issue with the finish in some way. But this one did so much right building up to it that I kind of give them a little bit of a pass. And again, knowing the outside circumstances where Steamboat, as far as I know, is leaving in advance, so you can't have him win the title, I at least give them a pass for. You're deflated from losing, but. He didn't lose clean, so you want to see more. Unfortunately, you're not going to. Yeah. So I give them a little bit of a pass for that because of the way it worked. Because the match is so good before that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. MVP is a tricky one for me because I'm kind of torn. I mean, 
Steamboat would be done with too easy because he's so good. I feel bad not giving it to him. So I'm torn between, uh, honestly, Slater, because I would not have thought I would say before watching the show, because he did so many things I didn't expect him to do. Mm-hmm. It's like when you watch your first Steamboat match and you, you don't know what you're going to get. And I've seen only seen him later in his career, but he's not doing half of what, he, what he's doing here. Mm-hmm. And kind of in a lot of, honestly, a lot of ways, I'm going to get put between him and Dusty. Because mm-hmm. he had to decide from the finish. I haven't seen a young Dusty match, like, ever. I've seen older Dusty where it's all, it's all showmanship, but there's no, like, physicality to it. So picking my MVP is kind of tricky. Tully was obviously great. A lot of really good people, but ultimately I have to go with Ricky Steamboat just basically because literally my bullet point note said, thank you, Steamboat. And he had the best match in the show, so it's hard not to pick him. Especially because I know I can't pick him for like four more shows. Okay. Uh, John. Uh, MVP is Dusty. Awesome acting, awesome promos. You know, he, he, I knew he probably had more he wanted to give and uh, genuine frustration, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, and uh, match is going to have to be a steamboat just because um, really good acting. Yeah. Yeah, for me, match of the night, steamboat versus Blanchard. Um, none of the other matches came anywhere close. Steamboat, just as excellent this year as, as last year, though in different ways. He really got to show off his selling. And while it gave the match a different pace than his match in 83, it just proved he can work in a really different style. Always easy to get behind him, but that was aided by a great villain in Blanchard. Just an utter jerk, used the injury angle to its fullest as much as he possibly could, and I just wanted to see Steamboat smack him. The spot where Tully spat at Steamboat was exceptional. Just this means war kind of look from Steamboat was great. And my MVP, I am going to take the easy way out and pick Ricky Steamboat. Fair enough. His performance was perfect in the ring. Yeah. And all the little subtleties in his performance more than made up for any problems he had on the microphone this year. So absolutely brilliant performer. Taking nothing away from Tully Blanchard, who did an exceptional job as well. But those little touches about Steamboat's performance just made it for me. And he's clearly MVP. And that'll do it for our review of Starcade 84, The Million Dollar Challenge. I hope you've enjoyed listening to us tonight. Many thanks to ProWrestlingHistory.com for attendance and closed-circuit figures for the show. We'll be back next month to have a look at Flair and Dusty's second Starcade main event at Starcade 85. Hopefully it will have an actual ending this time. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen and John Mullins, signing off. Good night, everybody.